she actually had a very she actually had a very distinguished career at starting at Hughes and then uh, going, which became Boeing, and uh, retired in 2013 as a uh, vice president of national programs. So had a lot of increasing responsible positions there at Boeing. So definitely all around. Um, expertise. And in addition, she uh, was recently elected in this past year to be a member of the National Academy of Engineering, which as folks know, is the highest honor that an engineer can get here in the, the United States. So um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Claire, Dr. Leo. Thank you. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. So you're going to project up there, right? Yeah. Right. Ready. Good deal. So Jennifer, fabulous speech. I can't wait to get your book. It's really, really interesting. Um, and interesting for me because the time frame kind of spans my career too. So I graduated from college in 1979. And so the first female astronauts were 1978. And I met several of them because of my work at Boeing and we manifested missions on the space shuttle. And so um, you know, anyway, so I know some some of the astronauts and some who perished in Challenger. And so that's you know the sad part, but a very real part of it as well. Okay, let's get started. Next chart. Okay, so this is like a, a, a little picture of my career. So I hired into Hughes in 1979, um, spent 34 years at Hughes. Um, you can sort of see the grayish building, the black and white picture, but kind of vintage, right? And then by the time I retired, a lot of the campus had been upgraded. Um, and then I, I, I think deciding to retire from industry was probably one of the toughest decisions that I had because um, after 34 years, I knew everybody, I knew how to get stuff done. And that was kind of what made me pretty good at my job. And so jumping out, one, you miss the people and you miss mentoring the young folks. And, um, but I really felt like I wanted to do something different. And if I didn't um, retire at 55, then there wouldn't be enough time to go experiment with different careers. And now I'm, you know, it's nine years after and I've done three different things. And so that's kind of interesting too. So, um, but I applied to head the launch organization at LA Air Force Base. So that was Air Force. And that was an exciting time. And I really thought I knew what it was going to be like to go work for the government because I worked with the government for a lot of my career. But I can tell you that you do not know what it's like to work for the government until you work for the government. And it's a very, very different job. So my job, and I was super proud of it um, at Hughes, was building spacecraft, getting stuff done, getting product delivered to the customer, and then working for the Air Force and heading up launch. There are kind of two roles. One was we call it buying rockets for all of DOD, and the other was launching rockets, so you know, kind of the operational arm. Um, so, uh, but the acquisition job is a very special job. You need to be what you call it level three acquisition certified because you're buying billions of dollars worth of stuff for the government, and there's a lot of checks and balances that need to be in place for that. So, a very different job. Um, but a lot of fun. And it was, you know, buying and launching rockets for the government. I don't think there's another organization that has as much enthusiasm as, and pride as the people that build and launch rockets because rockets are fun. Things that explode are kind of fun, right? Um, hopefully they're controlled, um, controlled explosions. And then I decided, um, well, so during my career, and I'll show you a little bit more of a career map, 
I had this vision of I wanted to be able to retire, teach, and consult. And so if you really want to teach at a college level, you really need a PhD. So in parallel with being a senior program manager and a vice president, I got my PhD. It took 10 years. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about, you know, focus on career and family and all that and kind of how you balance, um, which is always imperfectly. But because I had I had a 20 year plus vision of retire, teach and consult. Um, so about halfway through my time with the launch enterprise in the Air Force, Loyola Marymount reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to run the graduate systems engineering program? And I could not say no, because I had this 20 year vision. Of this is what I I'm going to do in my retirement. So I jumped ship. Uh, and again, I tremendously missed the team in launch and went to work in academia. And honestly, it felt kind of like, um, and another professor at MIT warned me about this, is it's gonna feel so slow in comparison to industry and government. So, and it did, it was really slow. And because things are on an academic cycle, if you wanna change a program, you've gotta get your pro proposal in and it'll hit the next academic year. In any case, the the um, what may be obvious is that academia did not turn out to be everything I wanted it to be. I really wanted to kind of go reinvent engineering at the college I was at, um, and it just wasn't open. It was a very closed environment, um, and it kind of makes me sad. But after three years of feeling like I was, you know, pushing a ball uphill, um, I decided to step back and just teach a little bit and then do more consulting. And then the consulting that I was doing kind of put me in touch with Space Force and General Gutline and so when they posted what's called a HQE position, it's a highly qualified expert, which I'm not positive I quite fill that role, but um, but anyway, I threw my name in the hat. And what was I found out about the position about two days before the application closed. And when you apply to the government, it's usually quite a lengthy package. So I dusted off my launch application and I I probably spent half an hour on the application, threw it over the fence, and they I have the job. So it must have been okay. And maybe it helped that they knew me some from the launch enterprise days as well. So that's just in a nutshell, um, kind of where I've been. So if you go to the next chart. Yeah, so this shows a career timeline, you could say. And so, you know, it says a lot of the things in a lot more detail than on the past page, but I'm not going to tell you every everything on here other than I you know I graduated with a BS in mechanical engineering started in propulsion spent a lot of time in systems engineering and program management and ran in line management kind of running large organizations and then back to program management but the, the key the code to this and it's it is not uh, to scale um, is that where there's errors going up I felt like I had jobs of increasing responsibility and where something's in red it felt like I hit a stall and so, um, you know, so there's many times when I kind of had, you know, took a step back and then had to figure out how you recover from taking a step back. And one thing I would say is it's showing up and being present and trying hard and trying to have a good attitude regardless. And sometimes that's really hard. If you have a big setback and everybody knows you had a big setback, it's hard to show up and really have a positive attitude. So, um, but that that was my strategy is just keep keep plugging away, keep trying. and. Um, I was super proud to be made vice president in 2000, um, it's 2008. And then, so as then I retired in, in 2013, um, education was a big part of my career. So I, 
early in my career, I got a master's in management, which I think really helped under helped me understand more about how you run a company. So not just the technical side and that I didn't think an MBA, an MA from Redlands was good enough. So I got an executive MBA from UCLA and then I, my PhD is actually in executive management, which actually worked pretty well for running a systems engineering program. Um, I got married in 1981. I had three kids, um, and I now have three grandkids and one on the way. Um, and that's all from one daughter. So she's going to have her hands really full. And, and she is the breadwinner of the family and her husband is a stay at home dad. So that's sort of fun too. Um, so I think balancing work and family is hard. I know that's like one of the super common questions. How, how do you balance? And I think it's, you know, it's, probably like anything that's hard, you can do it by putting one foot in front of the other and just taking it a day at a time and doing the best you can. I think if you asked my kids if I did a good job um, as being a mom and balancing everything, they probably would tell you no. Um, however, my daughter sees me now with my grandkids and she goes, oh, huh. And I, I spent a lot of time really trying to uh, focus on the grandkids too. That was probably the biggest decision in going back to work full time was these wonderful little kids and and they like me and they like to come over and we have Friday night sleepovers now. And so we do different things than when I was consulting and super flexible. But um, in any case, I could say that there are probably things I would do differently looking back, but when you're 24 and you're trying to balance a career and your kids, it's a little different than when you're 60 something and reflecting back. It's easy to reflect back and say, hey, I, I should have done this or I could have done that. I know I did the best I could. I thought I was super mom, but um, my kids would correct me. So, all right, next chart. But I, I think what I like about the last chart is more that careers are not linear. You're gonna have times when you progress and you're gonna have times when you step back and, and that's just how it is. So, but um, anyway, I wanted to give you just a little bit vignette of where I've been and then talk about the current job um, and U.S. Space Force, Space Systems Command, and why I decided to come back. Um, I think this is a very special time for U.S. space. Things are very different than when I was a young engineer trying to design satellites for commercial or government. Um, what we have had counted on um, for many, many decades is that space is uncontested, that whatever we launch and put in, in space uh, is safe. And that is shifting. And that's one of the reasons Space Force exists and Space Systems Command is the acquisition arm of Space Force. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about Space Force, so I, I lived Air Force, right? And Air Force is big. And a lot of it is uh, aircraft and fighting and and that is really where the Air Force's priority is. So to me, it's super interesting to be back as Space Force. And it's a really, uh-oh, uh, very small force. It sounded like we lost sound for a minute. Um, there's what, three what they call field commands. So there's SSC, which is Space Systems Command. There's STARCOM, which is training. And then there's SPOC, which is Space Operations. Um, so that's operating the satellites. And then there's headquarters, which obviously umbrellas that, you know, all of that. And that's it. That's Space Force. And so what's fun is that we've had a couple of what we call field command summits, where you have General Gutlein and his leadership team and General Whiting with Spock and his leadership team and Starcom and their leadership team. 
And actually, I already know these people. And so when I would go to Air Force, you know, commanders conferences, you would have a sea of people. I mean, you know, like the biggest, um, you know, hotels and the biggest rooms. Um, and I would didn't feel like I had an affinity with very many people in the organization. And, you know, our missions are very, very different because space is, is a little bit different. So it's really fun to be part of the Space Force and a very small group and feel like you can really have an impact. Um, so SSC, so the stand up of the Space Force and Space Systems Commands. So there is concern that that SMC was known as being slow and bureaucratic and building these big 10 year missions. And we're trying to reinvent ourselves into SSC, Space Systems Command, and be known for being much more agile and fast. And so this is a big ship to turn. This is not, this is a journey. This is not going to happen, you know, with waving pixie dust or changing the name of an organization. There is a journey, but it is different. And so, you know, again, I grew up building these systems on the government side. They would take 10 years to build. Um, I was fortunate to work many commercial programs and on those programs, those were like three-year programs. You go on contract and three years later, you're at the launch site launching the satellite. So, so I've done both. I've done the fast paced. I've done the, the big government programs. Um, but what we need to do to have the capability in space is very different than what we needed to do 10 years ago. So we are shifting. And so, and the key thing is, shifting from high value assets that take a long time to build and are very expensive to building proliferated systems. So low earth orbit, medium earth orbit, maybe complemented, maybe hybrid systems, but we're not building the same things that we've built over the past you know, 40 years. So that's, that's fun too. Um, so there is a fundamental need to increase the resilience of the systems. And so that when you think about what is a resilient system, you can take the high value assets and try to protect them, the high value asset being a big expensive satellite at geosynchronous orbit. Um, you can create hardware that can protect that so that if somebody tries to take out your system, uh, you fight back essentially. So that's a war in space, not necessarily where we want to be, but where we think we have to be. But a different option would be to be more like a GPS system, which has you know 30 something satellites. And so if you lose one, the system can kind, kind of self-heal. There's enough actually spares on orbit too, that GPS right now is relatively resilient, but people are worried about GPS too. And like GPS has other um, vulnerabilities and you know jamming is one. So we're trying to then think about how you make systems that are anti-jam. Um, but in any case, we are definitely worried about designing systems that are resilient, whether it's through proliferation, through hardening, through anti-jam capabilities, but it's really all of the above. And then we're also trying to figure out how to bring in commercial systems, commercial capabilities. So if you lose a government system, how can you bring a commercial system online? And then how do you bring in international partners as well? So in each of those, commercial adds resilience, international partners adds resilience, and then learning from current world situations um, is also um, really important. So we're definitely monitoring the war in Ukraine. Um, we're, as a US military force, we're not fighting that war, we're, but we are providing capability or enabling commercial to provide capability. So as an example, uh, Viasat was providing communication services into Ukraine and um, Russia figured out how to essentially damage the terminals on the ground. And then 
Starlink jumps in and says, we'll deliver you a bunch of terminals. And then um, Viasat also then replaced their own terminals, but it was literally necessary to go in and physically you know, replace with new. And some of the Air Force folks helped you know, transport um, those terminals uh, so that they could be you know, moved into country quickly. So, but it also shows us then what are the vulnerabilities of a commercial system and how do you work around them? And then that can educate us for what we need to be ready for. Um, again, if we have a bad day, you know, down the road, hopefully down the road. So the other part of uh, today, you know, current job and what we're doing is to work with the other mission partners. So an interesting thing is SSC is one acquisition organization. So one organization that buys space capability. There's many others. There's Space Development Agency, which is relatively new, and it's known for being able to move fast. It, it operates very differently. So not with mill standards, not with, you know, they really count on their commercial um, contractors. So there's Space Development Agency, uh, Department of the Air Force, Rapid Capabilities Office. There's a Space Rapid Capabilities Office. There's the NRO. There's MDA. All of these organizations need to work with to integrate capability. So my organization is supposed to work with all of our PEOs, but also understand the touch points of these other organizations. So we are not gonna tell the NRO what to do. However, some of the NRO systems need to pass data to us. And so we need to make sure we understand those interfaces and how they integrate. And then we also wanna be coordinated on the budget side. So from a money standpoint, what is Space Systems Command spending? What is NRO spending? What is MDA spending? And are these systems coordinated? Again, not trying to tell the other organizations what to do, but make sure we're not duplicating capability or that there's not gaps and look for those kinds of threads. So that's another um, responsibility of my office. All right, next chart. So the vision for my office is to essentially create, you know, an integrated space enterprise delivering resilient, effective warfighting capability that outpaces the threat. So, you know, it's just kind of a, a good vision statement. Um, I kind of don't want to concentrate too much on this chart, but this shows space systems. You know, go ahead and go to the next chart. Shows space systems command. So headed by General Gutline. Um, Executive Director Joy White, Deputy Commander General Cawthorn. And so what you see along the bottom, General Gutlein's job, and again, some of this language when you work for the government is unique to government. General Gutlein's job is to, quote unquote, organize, train, and equip this organization. And so the, this organization has five program executive officers so and they run a collect collections of programs so you have space sensing communications uh, position navigation and timing space no domain awareness combat power dmc cube so think about command and control ground but that overall mission um, capability and then assured access to space which is also known as launch but they have bigger visions and then we have the, the other black boxes along the bottom are really the enabling functions to running the organization. Over on the right, or maybe it's left, sorry, over on the left, you see the same PEOs show up, right? But there, they're reporting to the SAE, which is a service acquisition executive who was named just a few months ago, Frank Calvelli. So when the, the PEOs put together their acquisition strategy to buy their next set of stuff, that, get, that approval process goes up through the Pentagon, through the service acquisition executive. 
And then Frank Calvelli, he reports directly to the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall. So you see, they, you know, there's um, good opportunity for some tension, right? So General Gutlein um, organized, train, and equip, but then you see he has this uh, SSCCC, so um, commander, essentially, uh, space systems integrator. And so the idea is that he will be, when, when an acquisition decision goes to, to Mr. Calvelli, he is at the table. And then my organization is a space systems integration office. So my organization's responsibility is to keep him informed. Are they buying the right thing? Are they buying the right thing to the right standards? Are they putting the right kinds of things on contract? Do they, does their um, proposal for what they want to acquire next makes sense in the context of you know the greater system. So um, so we are still figuring it, this out. This is a new organization. This a lot of the people were in an organization called the Portfolio Architect just you know less than a year ago. And the, but the, again the job is changing from uh, a different construct within um, space missile space and missile systems to SSC. So the previous job was to kind of knit together the front end work and back end work. So there was a, a enterprise where there was a development core that did a lot of the new programs and then there was a production core. And so portfolio architect was trying to make sure those were knit together. Um, this current organization with the existence of these PEOs, they own end to end capability. So the job that we're trying to do is to integrate, not just, well, to make sure what the PEOs are buying makes sense, but then to also integrate with mission partners, keep track of what the other mission partners are doing and how that fits into the bigger space enterprise. Okay, next chart. So this shows my organization at this point in time. Uh, so there's really three big, three big boxes. And so one is the chief engineer systems of systems engineering. Uh, one is governance and, and investment planning, also known as the POM process. And then requirements, integration, and strategy. So looking at you know, current architectures, future architectures, and where they're going. So the systems of systems, some of that is you know, the specs and standards. Um, so if we're going to integrate, for example, with MDA uh, or an NRO system, and we need to pass data, and we need to make sure those protocols or interface standards exist. So that's an example of standards. We're also looking at things like space-to-space -space communications today. If you looked at who's doing optical links, for example, uh, space development agencies doing optical links, SpaceX is doing commercial optical links, there's other systems out there and today they don't talk to each other. So where we want to go a little longer term is to figure out how do we get these systems to operate, how do we have you know good optical standards now in, in some cases a, a geo satellite. Uh, talking to a LEO satellite might not work because of just the distance and the capability required. But over time, we wanna figure out how to fix that, um, just as an example. And then requirements, integration, and strategy. I'll show you another chart that talks about the, the Space Warfighting Analysis Center, how we work with them, and then turn their analysis and models into real programs. And then the budget piece ends up being really important. A, a fair part of this job is understanding the priorities. So um, if, and one of the, the um, major themes comes from the secretary of the Air Force himself, Frank Kendall, he has operational imperatives. And so there's seven operational imperatives. One is the space order of battle. Another is 
you know, uh, communications to the air platforms, for example, then strengthening the air platforms, strengthening forward basing. So yeah, he has a set of operational imperatives. Space plays a big role and is an enabling function. So as we plan the budget and we look at what program requirements are, we are absolutely prioritizing ways to get after the operational imperatives because Mr. Kendall's very worried about being ready for essentially combat in space if needed in the 2026, 2027 timeframe. So we are changing the budget to address the threat. And that is very different too. I think in the past budgets were much more stable and we are actively looking at what we can do differently to quote unquote, get after the fight. All right. Next. Um, So just a little bit on force design to execution. So the Space Warfighting Analysis Center is, an, uh, they're located in Colorado Springs under Andrew Cox. He has a team of very smart technical analytical people that are trying to define the future capabilities, what he's, you know, by mission area. And so we pay a lot of attention to what his force designs say or, or come out with. But what he will tell you is his force design is not a set of program requirements. It is not the implementation. It is a set of capabilities. And so you, it's one way to solve a problem, but it then gives us the information to be able to take that and say, okay, what is today's systems? What do, what do we need in the future? And then what are the, what's the trade space for us to uh, propose future systems that satisfy that force design? Um, the official requirements office is CSRO. They're at the Pentagon. So, but my team works with the SWAC force design, the requirements team, the PEO teams, and works trade studies, analysis of alternatives, say this is what the next acquisition should look like. This is also new. Um, and then we would recommend to the Program Integration Council uh, a path forward from acquisition. And then that would need to be approved by the acquisition organization. But ultimately, it needs to get, you know, a, a major acquisition would still need to be approved by the service acquisition executive. But mission area by mission area, we're analyzing where we are today, where we need to be, and what are the options for getting there? All right, next chart. This is just trying to show that this is an iterative process and that we're probably never done either. So an example is the, the uh, force design for what we call space data transport was just briefed out by Andrew Cox to something like, I don't know, 1500 people around the country, including contractors, including government organizations. And so we are taking that force design and saying, okay, what is most important to address first? And then we've had a team, um, you know, again, doing analysis of alternatives and we're getting ready to make a proposal to, um, well, so what we're really doing is getting the other tech directors from all these other organizations and saying, this is what we think, what do you think? And if we proceed in this direction, and it's probably a little vague because it's you know, more of a classified discussion. If we proceed in this direction, what agency is best fit to do what parts? And so, and then when we have a coordinated plan, we'll take that to the Program Integration Council. Program Integration Council has membership from all of those mission partners from SDA, NRO, MDA, SSE, um, and get the leadership on board. And then it would go to, um, to again, Mr. Calvelli for a final decision. So, but when we are doing this set of analysis of alternatives, that is not the solution for everything under the sun because 
space data transport will include narrowband, wide, you know, wideband, strategic, tactical. We're only looking at analysis of alternatives for one, one group of capabilities at this point. And then we'll get to the next capability, the narrowband, the whatever, um, you know, gradually. So it's really trying to figure out that 10, 15 year roadmap and what is stable today, what needs to change, um, and then moving in that direction. All right, next chart. I think that's a, yeah, so summary. Um, to me, there's no question that the imperatives have changed from these high value assets programs of record into agile proliferated systems that can be replenished um, relatively quickly. And where a system is not crippled if one asset or 10% of the assets are taken out. So um, we, we are in a fundamentally different time for space capability. And I think that's really exciting. And that's why to me, it was compelling to come back and leave my flexible consulting um, position where I had a lot of time with grandkids and a lot of time working on interesting problems, but where I could really make an impact by coming back and being a full-time employee. So, you know, just some themes um, of working in industry. I, I was super proud of my time building hardware and getting it delivered. And I think, I think that builds really good skills. Um, working in the government, again, it's a different job, but I think probably one of the most gratifying in terms of being able to make a difference to the, to the world. And then academia, um, super fun to work with all of the students, but probably more bureaucratic than either big industry or big government. So kind of stunning from that side, you'd think a small college could be super agile, but there's a lot of um, inertia and moment or um, just collegiate thinking, you could say. And then the difference of working for Air Force and Space Force is also super different. Air Force, very big and feeling a little bit misfit when working on the space side. And then Space Force uh, having an opportunity to work in a relatively small uh, focused government organization, but then having an accountability to partner with all these different organizations, um, you know, brings a whole different awareness of what's going on in space. So. Anyway, I'm happy to be here. Happy to take a couple questions. We're probably a little bit over where we want to be. Yeah, so we have a couple questions now, but also Dr. Leon's going to be on our panel, so we can always ask questions then too. But if we've got a couple of quick ones now, now. Yeah, so you mentioned that um, partner nations and like commercial, you know, industry are really critical in moving capabilities forward. So how involved are they in, you know, the development and discussions for, you know, moving these capabilities forward within the government? So to some level, a lot of this is new. Um, and there's a couple different offices that have been stood up at SSC that I didn't highlight on that org chart. One is a commercial services office. So I think, and that's under Jeremy Leader on the East Coast. So he is actively like the, you could call it the front door for commercial capabilities. I think there's another group that is now under Jeremy that's um, Comso, where we have bought commercial bandwidth for decades, right? And for all services, and there's kind of one organization that does that. So we are actively trying to figure out how do we shift from only buying comm 
to buying, you know, space domain awareness capabilities or terminals or networks, and and how do we shift that? So that's pretty new, uh, but that's being done through the commercial services office, and then my office is trying to work a formula for the, for that across all of the PEO areas. Um, but a lot of it will be commercial services working directly with PEOs, but my organization is kind of in a unique position because it can look for opportunities. And then international, similarly, we have Deanna Riles, I think her office is maybe a couple years old. She's out there working with a lot of different international partners, and they are frustrated that they don't know how to get in and how to provide capabilities. So again, my organization is trying to look at where can we bring them in and what's the process for bringing them in. But it's all very new um, in terms of organizational change. I talk about if there's a model that's storming, forming, norming, and performing, and we are storming. And, and I think that's okay. You kind of have to get comfortable with a little bit of chaos. If you try to define a problem too quickly, you're probably going to, or a solution too quickly, you're probably going to solve it incorrectly. So we need to allow that churn and then figure out the best practices of what to go forward with. Very good. Thanks, Dr. Leon. I want to present you with these. Your house and also a certificate. Thank you so much for your participation in our event, Making Space for Women. And so from the uh, LALV section, you always say yes when we ask you to volunteer. <laughs> we're just, we're very honored because we know from seeing your um, career history just how busy you are. So anyway, but it's always sincerely appreciated. And uh, let's see, we're going to transition to the first leadership um, panel. So um, if our folks could come up for the panel, be good. Just uh, going through your eyes. Is that the oh. right thing? Oh, I don't know. I think it'll probably be okay. Let's sit away from it. Okay, where did you want us not to sit? You sit anywhere. It's too bright. Oh, too bright. Oh, I see right there. Should be right in front of it. Okay. All right. We got our two online panelists are here. Dr. Lowe and Dr. Dittmar. Um, uh, Amy and Mary Lynn, can you turn on your camera, please? There she is, this is Dr. Dittmar, welcome. Look. And Amy, you see Amy. Oh, she can't. Okay. But you can hear us, Amy? All right. We good? She's online. And you can hear us, Amy, right? Do you want to do a comm check? I wasn't a panelist. But now I am. Okay. Very good. Oh, there she is. Hello, Dr. Lowe. Very good. So very excited to have this very um, esteemed panel here. Um, I'm going to just very quickly um, say who they are. I'm not gonna go into long intros because all of them have a very 
uh, distinguished and esteemed career, but I want to spend time to, to hear the statements that they have as well as any questions that we have. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on intros and uh, folks can always look them up on, on, on LinkedIn. So um, first, um, I'll just go on alphabetical. So uh, we have Ms. Crystal Costa, she's currently the general manager from Vector Launch. Uh, previously, um, she worked as a program manager uh, for Northrop Grumman. And I know her through Women in Defense because she's a past president of the Greater Los Angeles chapter of Women in Defense and also uh, a director for Society of Women Engineers uh, in the national organization, very, very active. So I know her through those two organizations. Um, Dr. Mary Lynn Dittmar, who we have online, you can see her there. Um, she was the executive VP for Axiom Space. She is currently the Chief Government and External um, Relations Officer for Axiom Space. And uh, for those that aren't familiar with Axiom, they're building the uh, first commercial space station. So very, very exciting there. Um, I actually met um, Mary Lynn way back in through the IAA uh, Economics Committee, actually, where we both were, were on it on one of the TCs. So uh, known her a long time. Um, next, we have uh, Dr. Roberta Ewart. Um, the most recent role I know her as, I know they've been really reorganizing over there at SSC, but she was chief scientist for, um, for SSC and um, is, is very involved in a lot of activities in road mapping and kind of looking for, for the future. Um, she's been very active in AIAA uh, for the previous AIAA space conferences. She always organized the national security track, uh, which was very well, well attended and so has been very active for AWA in their space activities. And if she's got a new um, title, she'll tell us what it is. But anyway, um, and then we have um, Gabrielle Inder right there. Yes. So she's VP of Manufacturing, Supply Chain and Logistics for uh, Millennial Space Systems. Uh, which was uh, has now been bought by Boeing. So it's a Boeing company. Um, previously to this role, she was at uh, SpaceX and she led their avionics production for their um, Falcon and, and Vulcan uh, vehicles. So welcome to um, Gabrielle as well. And then of course you heard the introduction uh, for Dr. Leon, Director of Space Systems Integration Office. And then rounding out the panel, we have Dr. Amy Lowe, the JWST Deputy Space Vehicle Director at Northrop Grumman. I think we should all give her a hand for her role in the very successful photos and launch uh, of JWST that we're all, we're all seeing. So congratulations from all of us. Thank you very much. You've got the excitement of not just the nation, but globally on, um, on that program. And it's just so thrilling to to see the photos. So yeah, she's the um, director of the vehicle engineering IPT. So she was responsible for all the systems related to the space vehicle that is working so so well. And her PhD is in uh, astrophysics from, from UCLA. So welcome, um, Amy. And then the other really interesting thing, if folks Google, there is a really wonderful rock video on JWST. It's called um, Looking Back. It's from uh, Dave Zabalawi, who used to work at Northrop Grumman. He actually retired quite early. He was head of business development, but he and a couple other of his colleagues had this band in the South Bay and they had this Looking Back video. It's a rock video for JWST, it's wonderful. So anyway, it's on YouTube. He, Dave Zabalawi put it up and you can find it, but it's just, you've probably seen it, Amy. It's just wonderful. So anyway, it's fun. 
Um, okay, so we'll go ahead and get started. Now, what I've asked everyone to do is to kind of give a, um, a three to five minute uh, kind of opening statement. And, you know, I left it pretty open, but I, you know, I kind of said, you know, since our theme is women's leadership in the aerospace field, you know, it could be a personal career story. It could be some lessons learned. It could be some key aspect of your current role that you're doing, but just something that is uh, related to the theme. So we'll let each people kind of um, talk to that for a few minutes each. And then I have uh, given them some questions that I think would be of interest. And then we'll also take questions from the audience. So why don't we go in alphabetical again? So Chris, why don't we start with you? Okay, can you guys hear me? Uh, good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, this is my second AIAA, so thank you, Ken. I appreciate uh, being included in such a great event. Um, I'm Chris Acosta. I'm the current general manager for Vector Launch. So it is a small startup. I call it a, uh, a restart. And that's because uh, the company I'm with bought the assets from the company that actually failed. So. I've been on a very interesting journey for the last year and a half of really how to enter into this new space arena. And there's a lot of challenges there. But I did wanna just take a step back for a moment and say I started based on this wonderful conversation we had about human spaceflight. That's actually where I started my career. I uh, was hired into Rockwell in Downey and um, I was a thermal protection systems engineer. My bachelor's degree is in material science um, and engineering from UCLA. And I did materials research for over eight years and it was, it was wonderful. And um, the, the story today was just so impactful because I remember a lot of the things that happened in my career. And I was so blessed in 1995, I went into the m and area and there were a lot of women amazing women doing um, research in high temperature ceramics, composites, metallics, and just really was given um, an interesting opportunity to be a part of that community. So um, I then went on and, uh, you know, for over eight years, I did that. I loved it. But of course, as a young person, you know, you want to do more. So I uh, thought I would leave North uh, Boeing and go to North of Bremen for two years, and then I would come back. I stayed for 18. <laughs> and uh, I did so because Northrop was just an amazing company. And they gave me so many different opportunities to not just do human space flight. I did national security, um, also a lot of uh, military aircraft and unmanned. So I spanned the gamut, and it was just an amazing journey. But about a little over a year ago, I decided that. Um, the, the excitement in new space was just a time, an unprecedented time in, in our country, in our nation, um, in this world right now to, uh, that, that's going on that I wanted to be a part of. So I took the jump and it's been um, quite the journey, but I really um, just enjoyed um, seeing the innovation from all of the small startups um, trying to do that on my own, building the team. You know, I had been in, a, in an environment where I had access to thousands of people and I'd been there for 18 years, so I knew tons of folks. I had uh, organizations that I relied on and, and then suddenly to go to a startup and I was pricing, I was contracts, <laughs> I was program management, systems engineering. Um, 
it was really, it's been very satisfying because you realize, hey, I have built skills and, and uh, you know, created my own journey. And so um, still want to work in this industry. I mean, I love aerospace and defense. So the fact that you guys are here today and, and going to be a part of this industry, I, I commend you and uh, hope to uh, cross paths in the future. So thank you. That, uh, background and yeah definitely difference between a startup and a, and a large company like Northrop Grumman so it's a great experience um let's see we'll go to uh Dr. Dittmar Mary Lynn next your opening statement sure Tess can you hear me yep can great um so again thanks I'd like to echo others for the invitation uh to be here today I've uh, done a couple of events now with um Los Angeles Las Vegas AIAA and uh, really enjoyed previous uh, time, and so looking forward to uh, speaking with all of you today. Um, in preparation for this, after I got Marilee's uh, request to sort of do a three to five minute, um, I spent some time looking back at a presentation I had recently put together for Astrofemina. For those of you that aren't familiar with it, it's an organization that was founded by three astronauts, Jan Davis, Susan Helms, and Sandy Magnus and specifically for the purpose of doing outreach to young women. Um, Astrofemina teams with um, organizations that themselves reach great numbers of young women. So for example, Girl Scouts um, or, uh, or others. And I recently was asked to be a keynote speaker at a convening that they held at Limestone College um, in Georgia uh, for high school sophomores and juniors. And part of what they had asked me to do was talk a little bit about my career and, and how it is that I got started and what sort of were key moments for me. And so I was thinking a lot about that presentation uh, last night when I was kind of, you know, sort of ruminating over, over what to talk about today. My own career path has been all over the place. I was really interested in, um, in Claire's comments about her own um, and I, I, I started actually, I was trained as a human factors psychologist who then got interested in the engineering side of things, um, and argued to this day that human factors is a case in point for systems engineering. Um, it's a, it's a, a subspecialty in a way, um, of systems engineering since it's about humans in the loop. Um, and the only thing that's sort of on the other side of that is like how you define that system and then the nature of the interactions. And I began as an academic um, and a scientist, and and then found that I had an entrepreneurial streak and started a consulting firm, um, moved out of academia and was eventually hired into Boeing um, and worked on the human spaceflight side, uh, originally in a sort of an internal think tank um, that was really essentially guns for hire um, to the entire company um, to work on particular issues. But we focused on both spin in and spin out. So I sort of doing ongoing surveys of what was happening in the external environment, thinking about ways that technology development that was going on there and innovations that were sort of emerging there could be applied to issues that Boeing was facing. And at the same time, helping to develop technologies and systems approaches internally um, that could be applied both not only to Boeing issues, but then also potentially spun out. And so that was terrific training ground for someone like me who was interested in a lot of different approaches um, and also sort of trying to learn more about how Boeing itself operated. 
But eventually I showed a knack, I guess, for management and systems work. Um, and I got promoted into the space station program, which was then deep in the firefight of development. Um, and, and I became, uh, I was in charge of uh, the mission operations group. And what we did was actually integrate all the inputs from all the technical teams, um, as well as international partners in NASA to develop a product that was called the OPO-1. And the OPO-1 was the procedural flow for activation assembly um, assembly activation and checkout of the space station. Um, it was structured by flight. Um, so essentially each segment of the station, and I'm sure you're all familiar to some extent of sort of the building up of the station over many years, um, each section of the of the station basically had its own its own uh, manifest, its own flight. There was, of course, integration with the shuttle, um, but then also just sort of the once you get it up there, what are you going to do with it? You know, what are you, how are you going to attach it? How are you going to activate it? Um, what's the checkout sequence look like? And so for me, this was a master class in systems engineering. Um, that's what it is. I mean, it just is sort of to develop those procedural flows. And eventually I moved from there into the business development. Um, after a while, I decided that the entrepreneurial side was calling and I, I, I left Boeing. Um, but part of my motivation to leave Boeing at that point, and this was 2004, and I don't want to I don't want to cast aspersions at all on the company. Um, my time at Boeing was probably the greatest postgraduate experience I could have imagined, um, both in terms of training me to be a better systems engineer, but also training me to be a businesswoman. Because um, when I moved into business development, I learned a lot more um, about business. But I will say that I was very often for a lot of my career, the only woman in the room. Um, and I used to tell some stories um, about uh, things that had happened early on, for example, on some of with some of my friends on the on the military the missiles and defense side. Um, we had been talking about that issue again about identifying technologies and approaches that might be useful across boundaries inside Boeing, which is one of the fun things about that job. Um, and, and I was in a meeting and somebody said, well, what do you say, boys, one woman? Okay. What do you say, boys? Should we hike up our skirts and pull down our shirts? Or maybe it was the other way around. Okay. And basically go down the road and go talk to the missile and defense boys. And I sat there for a minute and then I stood up. I don't recommend this by the way, as a career move, I stood up and I grabbed my sweater um, and I pulled it up to about mid chest, not so that I actually, you know, revealed absolutely anything, looked around the room and then said, any questions? And I have never seen so many people push away from a table so quickly in my entire life um, to this day. And I tell that story, there's a later story um, also there, okay, where I was standing at the desk of my boss's executive assistant, who, of course, like most executive assistants, held the floor together. Um, and I was sitting there talking to her, and someone came along and said, hey, dear, can you get me a cup of coffee? And I said, it's Dr. Dear to you. Um, and the coffee is down the corner and around, around the bend there, um, and you can go get your own coffee. And the reason I tell these stories, okay, is again, not throwing anybody under the bus. This was um, often sort of a product of the times um, and also the environment in which we were living. But because the way that I chose to handle those was um, with humor, um, it was assertive. Um, it, it did not back down, um, but it was with humor. So fast forward all these years now, my career has gone through a lot of different changes. I've somehow found myself in an advisory position to the United States in a lot of ways. I've 
served on the National Academy's Space Studies Board for years. I was on the National Research Council's Commission for Human Spaceflight. Um, I was on the Users Advisory Group for the National Space Council during the last administration, served at the FAA um, on Comstack. And I think really that part of why I've been able to do that and hopefully have been effective in some of those roles is because one, keep your eye on sort of the big picture. Two, don't internalize a whole lot of stuff that comes at you personally, because honestly, you'll just spend all your time doing that. Um, and then the third thing is, is, you know, really sort of just trying to maintain the sense of humor about, about a lot of some of this stuff. So um, that's not to take away from anybody's individual response to those kinds of things. But as I've continued to pursue my interests, I've also never accepted that I needed somebody else's permission to do that. Um, to have faith in my own abilities and my own freedom um, to follow my interests and try to maintain sort of a service orientation to try to help others. So merely, I don't know if this is really what you had in mind when you were asking about a three to five minute, but it really is being influenced by the thinking I was doing about reaching out to those young girls and a lot of mentoring that I'm doing at this point in my career. I'm 65. Um, and so I, I see myself as having a few more years in sort of a traditional setting. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about Axiom Space. It's an awesome place to be. Um, building the next commercial, the first commercial space station is quite a heavy lift and uh, we're having quite a time of it. Um, but, but I also just sort of wanted to share that because um, I think that some of the challenges that women have faced, they still face. Um, and I think it's important for us to network and talk a little bit about how we, how we manage those. And so I just offer that and I hope you'll all take it in the spirit in which it's intended. That was absolutely perfect, Marilyn. Um, that, that, just what we were expecting. And um, um, Dr. Damar really is a recognized influencer in space policy for her career. And you can also see she's just a lot of, of fun as well. So just really cool person to know. Um, so next, uh, Dr. Ewart, Roberta. Is this on? Yeah. Hey, Marilee, I'm so glad to be with you again. Ken, thank you for bringing this together. Folks in the room, I apologize, I was late getting in. I will stay after class for questions. Um, I probably have a different background than a lot of folks in the room. Uh, 28 years active duty military and a lot of my leadership experiences may not track directly with some of your experiences nor the future you anticipate, but I'll do my best uh, to give you insight. I did do four years as an assistant professor at Ohio State. So if you're seeking to go down the academic path, I can help you there. Also 50 publications and my AA experience was tremendous. Uh, as a professional society, um, you really should keep this in your portfolio. Okay, and now I'm a civil servant and my goal is to serve the country and keep the world safe so that you all can do great work from now into the future without having to worry that the world's gonna end tomorrow. Right, that's not, not cool. Um, regardless of the background, regardless of where we all are now, a couple of things I think might be useful. We do not decide to lead. Rather, people decide to follow. So I'm just gonna throw that as a general rule. We can expound on that, grow it. We can talk again after class about it, but that has, is a very unique interaction and you have to be in many different situations to explore that swapping of experience but truly you do not decide to lead it's your followers decide okay uh, next big thing i want to throw out there is the balance of soft power leadership skills and hard power leadership skills i came up through the most hard power environment 
that exists. It's the military and that's the way it's gotta be. And so we were not schooled on any soft power. You had to gain it on your own. And in doing that, I think I've learned a lot of pretty unique things so I can share those. Um, I personally think soft power is the most powerful because it's the power of the heart. Hard power is the power of the mind. I own you, that's hard power. But when this is brought into play, you're creating an entirely different thing. And a lot of NASA's greatness was this, the heart that we are gonna do what an individual set for us as a visionary goal. So that was kind of how NASA got its real ascendancy was this amazing soft power leadership. Um, and I noticed in my career, as I look at a lot of my colleagues, your soft power leadership skills are generally better than your male counterparts. And again, it's part of the reason is they, they tend to be tracked that way. I don't even know that they realize it most of the time. Okay, so you have an advantage. I think you should look at that as an advantage and see how you can oscillate yourself between having strengths with hard power and having uh, strengths uh, with your soft power. Um, again, I'll stay after uh, 28 years active duty military, uh, four years uh, Ohio State University, the Ohio State University as an associate professor, 16 years as a civil servant, and I've enjoyed every bit of it. And my goal is to lead innovation injection. I wanna be a change agent. So I think I'll pass it to the next panelist. Air Force, uh, what kind of programs did you lead when you were there? Oh, gee. I started out at NASA two years, 1982 to 1984. So that's why I wondered if Jennifer is still in there. I was there when Judy Resnick, Bonnie Dunbar, Kathy Sullivan came in. I was on mission control. I had to run the checklists with all the the um, pilot and commanders, I was in propulsion because my background was physics and electrical engineering. Um, let's see. Um, after that NASA activity, I uh, went to Oxford University on a Marshall Scholarship, got my MA in theoretical physics and philosophy of science. And if you ever want to go to a place that has 750 years unhampered by women's presence, <laughs> there you go. I, sh I showed up uh, to Balliol College. Um, it started in 12... 53 or something like that. And they, they didn't spend any days not telling us about the history. Um, came back from that, uh, went into global positioning system launch in early orbit. And I spent five years as a mission controller in Colorado Springs. Um, then after that, uh, went to teach in university for four years, then went back to Stanford to get my PhD in applied physics and electrical engineering. Then back from there to Kirtland Air Force Base to build lasers for the airborne laser. Uh, Geez, and then after that, back into space acquisition on the West Coast, and I've been here since 1999. So that's a quick yep. career rundown Thank for you. Thank you. So you can see how honored I am to be up here with this, all these women. They're just absolutely amazing. So I had to have Roberta add that. Okay, next we're gonna have um, Gabrielle Enders gonna give us an opening statement. Over to you, Gabrielle. Perfect, can you all hear me? Awesome. Uh, so I'm Gabrielle Ender. I'm the current Vice President of Manufacturing, Supply Chain, and Logistics at Millennium Space. If you haven't heard of Millennium, uh, they are a small satellite company that is focused on prototypes and constellations. As mentioned earlier, we are now backed by Boeing. So that's been an awesome opportunity as well to leverage the resource and expertise within, within the larger Boeing company too. Uh, most of our satellites are in national uh, space and defense. Uh, so I can't talk too much about that, but I am new to the company. I've been there about two months now. Uh, my Actual, my path has been very interesting and I think somewhat unique. I started my career in finance actually uh, 
at Morgan Stanley in New York. I was part of the fixed income trading floor. So another male dominated environment, definitely. Uh, but after spending some time there, I realized that I was more interested in getting back into a STEM type field. So ended up applying to SpaceX and uh, started there on the finance team as well. Uh, but after some time in finance, I realized I was interested a little bit more in expanding the types of projects I was involved in. Uh, I had at that time partnered pretty closely with the launch engineering organization. So ended up transitioning into a special projects role within that team focused on kind of long-term strategic initiatives, which was something I'm happy to talk about later too, but definitely in a very interesting pivotal moment for my career to move out of a finance team, which was my schooling and where I had worked for my career to that point into an engineering organization uh, where I did struggle a little bit with imposter syndrome. Uh, and actually that was an interesting moment for me as well because I was approached and asked if I was interested in leadership. So that's when I ended up stepping into a engineering leadership role, uh, which is where I've sort of spent majority of my career since that point in time. Uh, at SpaceX, I had an opportunity, as mentioned, I was in the launch engineering uh, community at that point, then was able to have a variety of experience leading technician teams, uh, also uh, data analytics teams and industrial engineers. And before leaving SpaceX, as mentioned, I was the director of avionics production uh, for the Falcon and Dragon space vehicles. So that included a team of about 250 engineers, uh, technicians, and quality inspectors. Uh, yeah, and then at Millennium today, I, as mentioned, I'm running the manufacturing and supply chain logistics team. So that includes everything from procurement to demand planning and material planning, kind of shipping, receiving, inventory, and then all of our manufacturing and test engineering uh, and build of all of our products, including space vehicle integration. Nice to meet all of you. Um, so we heard from uh, Dr. Long before, but if you would like to add something in terms of another story or something about leadership, if you want to, certainly go ahead. Okay, thank you. Can you hear me? Um, yeah, I've already talked a lot, so I'll just say um, I don't think there's anybody more surprised than me to be back working for the government and that, um, <laughs> that my academia consulting time didn't do it for me. But um, I think what happened about what drew me back into another leadership position was I was kind of consulting and it seemed like life was good. And then um, I got a call from a headhunter that was looking for a CEO for Draper Labs. And I realized um, how much I just profoundly missed leading organizations. And so I didn't, Draper Lab didn't work out because it's Massachusetts and I'm West Coast and my husband's a sailor and he's not moving. And then I ended up, and just things came my way about, well, would you interview for this? And that didn't work out. Would you do this? And so when this position came up, um, it just really drew me back into um, a leadership position. In my time at Boeing, um, I ended up becoming known as the fix-it person. So when a program was in deep trouble, then they'd give it to me. And that's kind of a little bit of a burden because it's really messy to sort out a program that's kind of known as failing and to get it to become a high-performing organization. So you know, I kind of reflect on that some. I do agree with Roberta about you know followers and leaders. A leader can't be a leader without followers, but you do sometimes get thrust into a leadership position. And sometimes people are really anxious to have somebody help sort out that black hole, but you do have to win over their hearts and souls. And I can say I've done things wrong many times, um, you know, like taking over 
during a reorganization, not necessarily taking over a troubled program, kind of coming in and wanting to be hard hitting and driving and oh, that didn't work, okay. And then, you know, even in my current job, I'm sure I've bumbled around some and, but again, you try to, to, to be as humble, for me, being humble is important, but being focused and driving is important too. And so it's just figuring out, you know, your own style. So I was interested in Jennifer's talk about one of the early women modeling her boss. And I thought, well, but what she modeled was a good mentor role model. So she didn't necessarily adopt the style because that was the only thing she knew. She adopted it because it was the right thing. If somebody listened and spoke and asked questions and empowered, so I think that's a really good thing. But, you know, so for me, um, I love leadership. I love running organizations. Um, I love empowering people. I love seeing people take on bigger uh, challenges. To me, there's nothing more gratifying than seeing people grow in the organization. So um, it's really not about me. It's about what I can do to help enable you know, the organization to be effective. So anyway, I, I just encourage people to try things and expect to get it a little bit wrong from time to time. And then you go fix it. Because if you don't try, um, you're never going you're ne never going to get there. But if you expect things to be perfect or expect to do things perfectly, that's just too high of an expectation. So let yourself off the hook and just keep trying and have some positive attitude. Thanks, Claire. Um, and Dr. Lowell, Amy, we're all very interested to hear about your uh, career story. Over to you. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me okay? Uh, hopefully you can all hear me. Maybe this is better. We can hear you, but it's kind of low. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah. I That's better. Is that better? Okay. I'll just talk around. Sorry about the audio issues, and uh, let's see, my name is Amy Lowe, uh, and um, I just wanted to say that I'm sorry for not being there in person. I, I was planning on going there, but uh, today is my uh, daughter's seventh birthday, um, so uh, her birthday party is at 1.30, and when I realized sort of the travel time and the time of the panel, uh, I wasn't going to make it back in time, so I, I'm virtual now. Um, uh, and in case you're wondering, yes, I had a child very, very, very late in life. Um, so balancing that uh, right now with the trajectory of my career is one of the uh, new things that I'm working on and learning. Um, so I also want to say, given that I am in my home office, which is a shed uh, off to the side of the house, she may burst in. Um, I apologize in advance if that does happen, uh, in which case I'll make her say hi. <laughs> Um, so I was the uh, deputy director of vehicle engineering for the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, uh, I've been working on uh, the Webb Telescope for about 10 years, uh, and uh, it, it definitely is the highlight of my uh, career. Uh, thank you very, very much for the very kind introduction. I know there's a lot of um, uh, interest in that, and I'd be you know, happy to answer questions, although I think that's not quite the focus of this particular panel. Um, so uh, I joined uh, Northrop Grumman in 2005, uh, and that's where I've been uh, and worked my entire career. So I actually work in the uh, what used to be TRW and now uh, Northrop Grumman, the Redondo Beach uh, facility. And again, I've been there um, since 2005. 
uh, let's see, I um, have a, a, a somewhat unusual background, I think, for being an engineer. I have a PhD in astrophysics. Uh, back when I uh, was younger, I thought I wanted to uh, be an astrophysicist and be in academia um, and kind of pursue the uh, very pure academic track. And um, turns out that I am, uh, and I should have known this, I am interested in a lot more than just uh, one area of life and of sciences. Um, and when I uh, was nearing the completion of my PhD, I realized that I do, wanted to do more than sort of deeply into the one thing and um, completely switched tracks and, and, and sort of looked at myself and what do I want to do? Um, and I realized that I wanted to do a lot of different things and so chose to be uh, involved in a large company where there are um, a lot of different options. Um, and so when I joined Rose uh, Rogan and TRW, um, I was very, very fortunate to be hired by a woman. And uh, I also joined uh, uh, the civil systems organization at the time, whose vice president was also a woman. Um, and so uh, I, I felt really fortunate to have worked in sort of a uh, um, leadership, uh, female leadership-rich environment and really never lacked the role models. Uh, I will also say that I went to, um, I am, I'm not an advocate of this, but I did go to middle school and high school uh, to an all-girls school. Um, so uh, I've experienced uh, single-sex education um, uh, all the way through. And uh, again, I don't know that that's the answer to anyone, uh, to any of the gender disparities, but I will say that it didn't help me. It was also a shock to the system to arrive at Brown University as an undergrad and realize that uh, rampant sexism is still alive and well. And to go to my uh, very first physics class and homework group um, and started talking about what the answer to, you know, question three would be and have no one listen. It was a very odd experience. Um, but I think that by that time, I had enough of whatever it is that makes me mean and me that uh, it didn't really uh, bother me. Um, uh, it was still awkward and um, strange to experience that. And I will say that to this day, it is awkward and strange when um, instances of sexism and racism happens, uh, you know, either at the workplace or you know, not. Um, so I don't know what it is that carried me through uh, those, but uh, possibly a core belief in my abilities and what I can and, and do contribute. Um, you know, the negativity is certainly there, but uh, you know, as other folks have said, you try to work through it and not let it affect you. Um, and uh, certainly try not to internalize it and do something bad, of course. Um, so let's see, uh, once I started uh, uh, at North Carolina, like I said, I joined uh, Civil Systems and uh, that area was a lot of new missions and technology development. So I spent the first um, seven to eight years of my career doing uh, uh, NASA focused uh, proposals and also technology development. Um, and then uh, I was extremely fortunate to be able to join uh, the web uh, program um, and that was in 2012. So uh, as far as that particular program goes, I'm, um, I wouldn't say I was a newbie, but I was uh, maybe sort of milling of the road. That program has been with North Carolina uh, by the time it launched for 20 years. And there were folks that started in the pre-proposal phase, which meant that they've been a home program for more than 20 years. Um, and uh, for all of us working on it, it, it's, I don't know, there was something really uh, intense about the web program. Um, most of us, uh, 
really treated it almost like a calling, not just a job, not just part of our career, but one of the priorities of life. I, I think that to survive the intensity um, and um, some dark days that happened on the web, you really had to bring that level of commitment to it. And, and you know, one of the best experiences of my life certainly is working on that, and in particular, uh, last Christmas, where we got to do the uh, launch and operations of that. I was um, uh, the engineering lead in what's known as the back room, uh, where all the engineers uh, were uh, doing the uh, launch and deployment and getting web to the operational phase. And uh, I'm so proud of the team that uh, did it. Um, we persevered, we got through all of our issues, public issues, and uh, really just was so glad to be able to bring such um, a capable instrument online. Um, let's see. Uh, I, I am. I have transitioned off the web uh, telescope now. Um, uh, once it was uh, fully through its commissioning phase, uh, my job there was done. Um, so, since February of this year, uh, I have been the director of uh, uh, vehicle uh, space vehicles for um, the next generation solar program. Actually, uh, so under uh, SC, SSC, and in fact, um, uh, my fellow panelists are uh, some of my customers. <laughs> um, uh, let's see, uh, that's pretty much everything I kind of wanted to cover, and like I said later, I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. That's cool. And now your next uh, assignment. I was kind of curious what it was, given that you had launched uh, JWST, so it's cool to hear you're working on something for for SSC. Um, so I'm going to start with a question, and then uh, folks here can be thinking about questions for our panel, but since this is kind of related to um, uh, career development, I was wanting to ask the panel members um, to what extent either mentors or career advocates have been uh, instrumental in their um, career journeys, and specifically if they recall some piece of advice that they got from that um, uh, person that was either their mentor or their advocate for their career, um, to share that with our audience. So um, anyway, if anyone wants to start with that, it's you know, fine, we can freeform. Anybody have something you want to add? Sorry, <laughs> I keep turning this off. Um, sure, I've had a lot of mentors and um, and I was very fortunate to, to, uh, to have great people working with me. Many of them actually have been men. I don't know if, if a lot of you have experienced that, but just, um, when I was early in my career doing thermal protection systems, you know, there was a part of me that thought, am I just building the charts? <laughs> but really, I was working with senior um, engineers in thermal protection systems. Uh, we were working on um, what is that next technology? How do we build a winning proposal? How do we convince a customer? I was getting an amazing education in how to navigate the business. Um, and I, I really think that that was instrumental in, in just building a foundation that I was able to build on. And through my career, like I've said, I've taken on many different roles, but that, uh, you know, that foundation was always with me, you know, how to, how to put a proposal together, how to put a, um, hopefully win that, and then execute it. And so mentors have really been instrumental in my career. I think as we as I progressed, you know, I was just given opportunities in many cases of 
hey, I've got a program. I need someone, come help me. And so that's why I think I've moved around into so many different areas. Um, wasn't really looking for something. I just was like, oh, sure. It's like great timing. I'm finishing X. I'm going to move on to Y. So I think leaving yourself open to different things, different um, program areas, I think is, is really great. And so I think um, I, I highly recommend having mentors. Um, I think maybe later on, we'll talk a little bit about what, what more mentors can do. And I think I'll just kind of briefly state <clears throat> that in my work at the Society of Women Engineers, so for SWE, you know, we talk about mentors and I think that's important, but it's really important that we talk about being sponsors. And there's a pretty big difference, right? Mentors might give you advice, um, share their experiences, but a sponsor is someone that's going to actually help put you into a role or, or to open the doors for you to get that next role. And I think um, in some cases, I've had a lot of men that have actually helped me. The, the current role I'm in, you know, I was talking to a friend and saying, you know, I think I'm up for something new. And the next thing I know, he's like, talk to my buddy here. You know, we had a brief conversation. Next thing you know, I was getting an offer and, and I decided to, to take on that opportunity. But I think that that was just really interesting because I had had other conversations with women and they were, you know, excited for me to look for a new opportunity but it came short in some cases of actually um, making that call and making that connection. So, so I think um, I've seen both. And I just think that that's something that as women, you know, I want to be able to do that for other women as well, right? Hey, I know someone who needs a, a great materials person or something like that. But I think that's where we can, um, we can do some additional work there. Thank you. I think to add on to that, I also had an opportunity that I somewhat mentioned earlier where I had a strong mentor and sponsor really help talk through my lack of confidence in moving into a role where for the first time I was going to be managing engineers. And I think for me, it was particularly intimidating because it was a small team. It was three people. So it was a good kind of step into it. Uh, but one individual had a fluids engineering background one had a mechanical engineering background and one had a PhD in applied physics. So it was a very broad skill set within the organization. So it wasn't even something I felt like I could go home and read a book and really try to know how to be a good leader, how to technically be able to keep up with all of them. Uh, and really what I thought at that moment would make me successful. And I think that really taught me that most leaders don't wanna put you in a position where you're not going to succeed. And how do you take a step back and believe in yourself and understand what success looks like and, and how to enable yourself to grow. And I think that's something I have really appreciated too about moving into my role at Millennium is there's an opportunity to try new things and see what will work for you and how you can define growth for yourself in your career and definitely leveraging mentors and sponsors to help you, you know, if you're lacking in confidence or having a moment where you're not sure if you can be successful to, to really talk through it and understand that you can do it. Probably the best advice I got, and it came from many, many, many sources, my parents uh, and others. Um, there is a natural spiral of challenge and mastery. For those of us who finished at least our bachelor's degree, the sense of accomplishment or mastering a fairly long or extended uh, project is critical. 
but then choosing that next challenge carefully and maybe weighing it from multiple inputs on what challenge you should seek next, then you will have to create likely an additional skill set uh, to master it. And as you do this challenge mastery spiral, you're naturally going to build a toolkit that you don't know when any one of those tools is going to come to be useful. But you really have to do that. If you stay in one thing too long, your, your toolkit is likely not going to serve you uh, well uh, downstream. Important mentors were advice that you got. I'll jump in. Um, so I had uh, one of the strongest mentors I had was actually my PhD advisor um, and uh, was just tremendously impactful in, in terms of how he poked and prodded. Um, he was tough. Um, I used to say I was raised by wolves, um, but it, it uh, in grad school, but it actually helped me tremendously. Um, and I, so I think that was great. Um, I had really um, various, especially once I got into human space flight, had some really, really strong positive relationships with senior leadership that I was really fortunate to work with. Um, Bill Gerstemeyer comes to mind and, and several others who uh, were just, you know, tremendously helpful and supportive who I learned with and, and tried to contribute to. Um, but I'd like to say another thing about peer mentorship. Um, you know, that's something that we can start really at any phase in our careers. Um, we don't have to wait until we've had 20 or 30 years under our belt um, to begin doing that. And I think that's something that women are um, following on the comment that was made earlier about soft skills, just because we're socialized to them. Um, I think that um, I think that women maybe have a little bit more lower bar, a little, well, I don't, not lower, but I don't mean that in a negative way, but uh, it may be a little easier um, to approach, uh, approach peer mentorship. And I have been um, very, very uh, grateful over the years to find, to find peers um, who are mentors. So I continue to, uh, to work with to this day. Um, and those, some of those relationships have been some of the most challenging and growth promoting um, and supportive um, that I've experienced. Ned? I'm sorry, I lost that first part of your uh, question when you were uh, asking me. Oh, did you hear the, the question about um, if you got any really great advice from a mentor that you'd like to share? Oh, uh, that really helped was, you in your career? Yeah, just the one really that, um, uh, that I'm struggling with uh, right now, which is um, about boundary setting. Uh, I have, again, from multiple sources been, you know, told over the years that you've got to set your boundaries to create the right balance that you have in your life. And it's never run more true than uh, now. Um, uh, and uh, I was always very worried about setting boundaries. Um, uh, you know, earlier on in my career, when it was just my husband and I, um, it was easy to devote uh, 100%, as it were, to, to your job and to be always available and to do whatever was needed, travel, etc. And um, with a child, I was very concerned about uh, my ability to, to do everything that needed to be done and to also balance um, my life, <clears throat> as it were, with my career. And uh, I found that with... Um, that once you set the right boundaries, you're firm about it, 
but actually things uh, at, for me, it was worked out. Um, people are relatively respectful of that boundary. Uh, and uh, I have been able to get everything that I needed to do done while at the same time trying to raise a kid. And so um, I guess the lesson learned here is uh, not to worry so much about what other people will and will not accept from you. Um, rather, it's more internally about what you are able to give to one particular aspect of your life and being, um, being willing to articulate that and being willing to and not be too afraid of you know, whatever consequences may be from a particular you've done. Thanks, Amy. Um, Claire, I have one question following on when uh, Chris was talking about sponsorship and given that in the role you're in, um, I had the question about for diversity, equity, and inclusion, there really is kind of this need that everyone can be an ally and an advocate. Women can do stuff for other women. The, the men who have been vendors can do stuff for other folks that might be underrepresented in engineering. What do you feel is really important that an ally or an advocate could do, or what types of things do you do for other people um, as you see them in terms of developing their careers and stuff? What are important assets that you can do as either a sponsor or an advocate for someone? So some level, I think I always try to keep an eye out for, um, for somebody who might need an assist or is looking for an assist and then trying to, to enable that. And so it was strange, I was just at a conference in Utah and a young lady who works for MIT Lincoln Lab asked a question of the general, General D.T. Thompson about you know, the government requirement process and how slow it is and, and what we can do differently. And it's funny because his answer was about culture. And, and I thought about that. But what I loved about this young woman was her energy and drive. And I want to help her. So, so I'm in contact with her now. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out the, I, I know the program, I don't know the program manager. I know the, the, um, the lead. And I, but I want, to, I want to work and help her. And so to some level, I, I'm always kind of looking for or listening for somebody who's clearly high potential, who just needs a little bit of a, a push. Um, and then, of course, there's the organizational thing where part of your job is to make sure you have the right the right job. You provide coaching and solutions around as needed and whatnot. So that's, that is part of the job as well. But to me, the really fun thing is helping somebody who gets a little bit stuck or frustrated and try to help them through that. Um, we're getting close to the time, but there's a question here in, in the audience that someone has they want to ask. Take one. Hi, my name is Amber. I'm a PMP engineer at the Aerospace Corporation. I actually had a question for Gabrielle. Uh, you've moved a lot within uh, industries and within companies. How do you get, because some of that's got to be convincing other people that you're up for a very different job. So how do you go about those conversations? Yeah, I think for me, I've always been a big believer in asking a lot of questions. I don't think the expectation should be that on day one, you know everything. As a leader, you're never gonna know as much as individual contributors on your team that own specific products or are the subject matter expert. And I think to me, part of it's just having a comfort with that. So how can I, as a leader, as an individual, help to know what questions to ask, to drive the right outcome, and to ensure that I'm able to provide an environment and, and guidance to the organization to go in the direction that we need to go to meet our strategic goals and vision that we might have at any point in time. And I think to me as well, in some ways, the first experience is always the most challenging. And hopefully from there, even as Dr. Leon mentioned earlier, 
if you become somebody that can solve problems, and if you're able to demonstrate the ability to solve problems across a variety of playing fields, then I think those doors start to open and then you're able to just be the person that's saying yes, jumping in, doing the best you can to try to figure it out and know that on day one, you're not gonna know everything or, or always be perfect. And that that's not a realistic expectation from anybody else for you either. Thank you. Um, we are getting cl close to the end. I wanna make sure we have enough time for our second panel, which is gonna be equally as informative, but I do wanna end with each of our um, panelists here. Um, I'm gonna give them each uh, 30 seconds and I want them to provide to all of us here one key piece of advice that we, they would provide from a career perspective. So we'll make it short and sweet. I'm sure they've got lots of advice to give, but to select one and to provide it for everybody. So we'll start again in alphabetical. So Chris. My advice is really, you know, you've heard that book, Lean In, right? Be present, come up, do put yourself out there and take that challenge, right? If you fail, I mean, we've all kind of not done our best sometimes, but you know, you gotta keep trying and, and putting, um, your best foot forward. Um, it's, it's Mary Lynn, it's hard to top that. Um, I was actually thinking exactly that um, to lean in, um, but also keep in mind that as a leader, part of what, at least in, in my model of leadership, part of what you're really there to do is lift up others, um, right? And find those, those next generation of leaders. Um, so, Definitely lean in, take on those challenges. Don't be afraid to do that. If you fail, eh, there'll be another challenge around the corner, um, but be looking for the next folks coming behind you and, and sorting how it is that you can help them. Burden. All else being equal, people will tend to follow optimists. That may be difficult for some of us, especially if you're a, a pessimistic realist. I think that's where I fall out in the spectrum. Uh, I believe that this um, bias occurs because people think that if they follow the optimist, things will get better. Very interesting. Uh, Gabrielle. It was mentioned earlier, but I do think as well that setting boundaries is very important. And I think it's okay to ask questions about where those boundaries are to try to define them. I think I've seen a lot of people burn out very quickly by trying to say yes too much and trying to take on too much. And I think, you know, as women, sometimes we want to be perfect as well in everything that we're doing and it's not always possible. So know for yourself, know where your boundaries are and uh, leverage support systems within the workplace to help, you know, have an outlet to discuss uh, where's appropriate as well. Um, Claire. Just reinforce what's kind of already been said, show up, be present. Um, and the boundaries was important. I had kids very young, my son I had when I was 24 and then and whatever beyond, but I had to um, show up at work and work really hard for the hours I was there and then shut it off and go home and be a mom. And, and I think that's okay. And, but again, I was known as somebody who could get stuff done. And then my parting thought would be put, we, we talked about lifting others, but also put the mission first. And so I think if you, part of in being optimistic and inspiring is, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? And you know, why are you making the decisions you're making? But it's to accomplish the mission. It's not because I'm trying to get ahead or whatever. Um, and if you just focus on getting the job done and the mission and the, the greater good, then a lot of other things fall into place. And Amy, last word goes to you. All right, thanks. Um, 
I think that for me, uh, you know, I've often find that if I'm doing something that I really love, I experience this phenomenon called losing time. I lose track of what's happening, of what time it is. You know, it goes from uh, day to dark, and I, and I don't even know it. And so if you're one of the fortunate people that can figure out what makes you lose time, do that. Very good. What do they say? When you're doing what you love, you don't think you're, you're working, right? So very good. Um, I want to thank our panelists. And again, we had a short time today. I know we would have had lots of other questions folks could have. But as I said, I want to leave time for our second panel. But I want to sincerely thank everybody for being willing to um, participate and saying yes to AIAA, LALV when you ask. So yes, this is out. OK. Thank you all. Thanks, Early. And then we've got um, for you, we'll get these in the mail to you. So, Dr. Whitmore, Dr. Lowe, thank you so much for participating with us online. And I am very impressed by the setup they have here where we're able to actually see people here and all of you and hear it. Oh, yeah, I better, you won't be able to hear me saying thanks, but I'm very impressed with the setup here. It's just amazing um, how they can get this work. So I have to give them kudos on their technology to do this hybrid. It's not an easy thing to do. So let's have our uh, second panelist come up. I'm going to introduce Marilyn, who's the moderator, and then she's going to um, introduce her panelists. Thank you for having me. Thank you. She's coming with the key for the alarm. Went out the wrong door.
Yay, thank you. <laughs> we'll make sure we don't do it again. <laughs> this one right here, okay. That one's okay, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, appreciate it. So yeah, I did want to introduce our uh, moderator for our next panelist, which is our uh, young young professional panel. Uh, it's Marilyn McCullen. She's currently the um, executive director for the Office of Ceremonies and Events at California State University, Dominguez Hills. Um, this is actually a recent job for her that she took in March of this year, but previously she worked for uh, Los Angeles County where she was the director of the Officer of Ceremonies and Events and um, uh, did that uh, uh, for quite a number of years, for, for eight years. And then she also worked for the Los Angeles Economic Development uh, Corporation as well. And um, was uh, re responsible for things related to the X Prize as well, the X Prize Graphic Senior Director of, of Operations. And in addition to that, she has been um, active in um, the AIAA, uh, Los Angeles section, and um, as one of their uh, directors. So we're really glad to have her support for, uh, for AIAA as well. And we're really thrilled she agreed to be the moderator for this panel. So I'm gonna turn it over to um, Marilyn. Thank you, Mary Lee, and thank you, Ken. And I guess uh, the panelists can come and sit down. And I'm, I'm gonna put some stuff down. <clears throat> what a powerhouse of women, both in this room and on the screen. Um, it has been just a privilege to listen to every single one of the earlier panels and speakers, their professional journeys and careers. I think that uh, one thing that we've learned is that at least there were a couple of words that I wrote down through listening to them is that versatility, curiosity, flexibility, leadership, and a sense of humor goes a long way. So um, thank you for our earlier panels. Ladies, we've got big shoes to fill. So, so um, let's begin and let's see on camera, I believe we have, who do we have on camera? We have Lisa and I think Eunice is gonna be on camera. Ken, who else do we have on camera today? Lisa? Yeah, and anybody else? Yeah, uh, Celine. Celine? Eunice is here. And Eunice, okay. Okay, well, welcome, ladies, and thank you. And um, yes, I'm very excited to welcome all of you to the next portion of Making Space for Women. Um, on the, as Mary Lee mentioned, I'll be your moderator. The panel is comprised of incredibly impressive professionals who have both have been in their early career stages and who have also made considerable impacts in their career. Before we introduce our panels, I came across some statistics that I thought were meaningful to kind of set the stage for what we're gonna talk about. So some thought provoking statistics. In 2016, the US Bureau of Labor Statistics listed the percentage of women aerospace engineers at just 7.8%. Two years later, that figure almost doubled to 13.4%. However, in 2022, we take a big step back, not a big step, but certainly a step, um, in a report titled Aerospace Engineers and Demographic Statistics, 
The report revealed that 12.5% 12 of all aerospace engineers are women. So we're going backwards. That's not good. Our trajectory should be forward. And why? The report also revealed that little progress has been made in increasing female representation in the aerospace engineering sector. In some cases, female representation had even decreased due to negative workplace culture, uh, challenge disproportionately facing women when navigating a work-life family balance. And we touched upon some of those things earlier today. Um, so I thought that was interesting. So as we talk about this in panelists, you know, how do we invoke change? How do we make space for women? Because um, we want those numbers to go up. So let's start by meeting today's extraordinary talent who are hopefully, I mean, these women, you entered a field when the percentages of those like you are very low. Um, so there isn't a, common, a lot of commonality as far as the people that look like you in this field. Um, I'm so excited to be able to talk to you and for those on screen that, and I know Monica, you are more advanced in your career as well as Lisa. So I'm really excited to hear from both of you as to your career path. So let's start with introducing yourselves and giving sort of a one or two minute spiel on your background so that all, people will have an understanding for your conversation. And I think we'll start with the ladies on screen. Um, Eunice? Yeah, hi, my name is Eunice. Um, I have my, oh, actually I should do a mic check. Can you guys hear me? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, Can you sorry, yes. Okay, Eunice, thank you. Yes, if you wanna introduce yourself. Yep, um, so my name is Eunice Lee um, and I have my bachelor's of science in chemistry and my master's in materials engineering. Um, I started my career in the aerospace industry in 2015 as a chemist, and I worked in a materials characterization lab at Aerojet Rocketdyne. Actually, prior to my full-time employment at AR, I did three consecutive summer internships in the lab, and I guess they liked me enough to invite me for a full-time position. Um, and I, and at my role in the lab, I was a chemist where I kind of supported um, production of space hardware um, and I worked with various analytical instruments and I also um, developed a couple of thermal barrier coatings that were used on hypersonics. Um, I eventually became highly specialized in contamination and failure analysis and I eventually kind of transitioned to a more engineering role and I actually switched to a different company entirely. So I got hired to become a contamination control engineer at Northrop Grumman in Azusa, California. And, and I worked with optical payloads there. Uh, Amy, Dr. Amy Lowe, she mentioned that she works on um, next-gen polar. And I was actually the contamination control lead for the polar um, mission payload. Um, so I don't think we ever got the opportunity to, to meet before I left Northrop, um, but it's kind of nice seeing another uh, polar uh, person here. Um, so at my role in Northrop Grumman, I developed cleanliness requirements and implementation and verification plans for our optical payloads and remote sensing systems. Um, but it was a very short stint. I was there for less than two years. Um, and I took on a different opportunity at Blue Origin where I am currently. I just finished my third week at Blue um, and I work in the New Glenn program, still as a contamination control engineer um, 
for those of you who aren't aware, New Glenn is a heavy lift um, launch vehicle. Um, and I specifically support the second stage or the payload accommodation. Um, so I work with a lot of different payloads and I make sure that our payload fairing won't contaminate our sensitive um, customers' payloads. Um, I'm also a instructional faculty member at CSUN um, for the Assistive Technology Engineering Master's Program. I haven't taught my first course yet. It's actually scheduled for spring 2023, so it's coming up really quick. Um, and I'll be teaching a graduate level materials course to help students design and select materials for new assistive technology products. And that is my background. There we go. Um, impressive. I love the fact that you just started your new job in three weeks ago. Um, I hopefully you'll you'll be saying that very frequently within your career path that I just started this new job because it's a new path and it's a new opportunity. Uh, Lisa on screen, why don't can you introduce yourselves and tell us about your background? Uh, yes, can you hear me uh, with the audio here very well? Calm check. We can I hear can you hear loud and clear. Oh, excellent. Great. Just want to make sure. Um, I hold over uh, 20 years of professional experience from sea level to Zeus in product and project management, cybersecurity, uh, implementing Y2K initiatives for electronic trading um, globally and with international government uh, affairs. I'm a graduate of the Clemente Veterans Initiative Program, and I will be teaching digital literacy with diversity and inclusion through the Clemente course in humanities, arts, literature this fall. And um, I serve as a NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory Solar System Ambassador, a NASA Citizen Scientist with NASA's Advanced Air Mobility Working Group, the NASA Exoplanet Watch, and the GLOBE program. Um, I'm very proud to be serving as a member of the Mission Astro Access in Flight Ops, Logistics, and Development with Diversity and Inclusion. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, Celine, are you on screen? Hi, everyone. Um, I am so sorry that I could not join live and my spot connection is preventing me from um, doing the video as well. I turned it on earlier and I almost lost full connection. So you're going to be hearing me but not seeing me unless you're looking at my um, headshot. I am also working at Blue Origin. I will be starting in September. Um, I graduated from UCLA in June of this year with a bachelor's in aerospace engineering, and I um, got the job in test and flight operations for the New Shepard vehicle lined up. Previously, I had interned at Blue Origin in addition to um, Axiom, uh, as well as the Air Force Research Lab, and um, a company out of the Mojave called 
Maston. And most of my experience there was either in propulsion or doing um, test operations. So I have uh, been looking forward to doing flight operations for a really long time. Um, and I'm interested in new develop or developments in new space and commercial space. So this was a great job for me. Um, I'm excited to hear what everyone else has to say on the panel. Thank you. Thank you, Celine. It's nice to meet you. And I believe you are also president of the AIAA student branch at UCLA. Yeah, so before I graduated, I was the president. The new president is, um, I don't believe he's here today, but uh, he was really excited when he heard that I was going to be on the panel. And I'm honored to be on the panel, of course. Phenomenal. Thank you so much. Um, let's go to our in-person pa panelists, Laura. Laura and I served um, last year together on a similar panel here. So it's actually nice to, very pleasure to meet you actually in person and not on camera. I think that was all during COVID and that's all we did is live our lives on camera. Laura, please introduce yourself. Thank you. Okay. So I'm extremely humbled to be in this room full of amazing professionals. Um, you all are really inspiring. Uh, my background, I started at the Air Force Academy with a degree in astronautical engineering. And then I moved on to the Air Force Institute of Technology for master's in astronautical engineering. First assignment was here at LA Air Force Base working GPS launch and got to cross paths with Dr. Leon. So cool to see that connection again. Um, I worked there for just a year and then got assigned over to AFRL at Kirtland Air Force Base. And worked a couple of assignments there. First one was space battle management, command and control. Second one being PNT special programs. Um, after that, I had served my five years and decided that I didn't want to be in the Air Force anymore. I wanted to pursue a more engineering oriented career. So I switched over, became a civilian. Got hired by Canyon Consulting. It's a small company uh, over by LAX. We support the Space Force and that's what I'm doing now. So I'm supporting as a consultant to the Space Force working PNT programs. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right. Hi everyone. Uh, thanks so much for having me today. Thanks to Marilee for inviting me to join today. Um, my name is Nell Finnegan. I am an engineering specialist at the Aerospace Corporation, and I specialize in model-based systems engineering and agile um, programs, um, like guidance. So I started my career in 2012 um, in Connecticut at Pratt & Whitney. They make uh, gas turbine engines for commercial and military. So I started my career in commercial development and test. Uh, had a mechanical engineering background and I really just wanted to get my hands dirty. So I stayed there for about five years and did a lot of ground test, flight test and test operations um, type of roles. It was a really great learning experience and it was really great um, education for me to learn how a big aerospace company runs. Um, I decided to transition to the LA area because there's so much more the aerospace industry has to offer here. There's just so many different types of companies doing a lot of exciting things. Um, so I transitioned over to Collins Aerospace. Now that's all part of Raytheon Technologies um, into a systems engineering role, which I, you know, while I was a test engineer, I went 
back to grad school to get my master's in systems engineering. So I transitioned my focus to more systems role. And I worked at a pretty small branch of Collins that did, um, is kind of a niche area. It was like chemical detection and air quality monitoring for harsh environments. So like a lot of words, right? But really what that is, it's, it's chemical detection. So like chemical weapon detection systems, but also air quality monitoring for the space station and environments like submarines. Um, so I was a jack of all trades systems engineer where I kind of got to do test planning, integration and tests, but I also did a lot of proposal writing and business development. So that was really, really cool. I learned a lot about model-based systems engineering and I thought it was a really great way um, to move forward in systems engineering and be a bit more agile. And I also got to pilot our first um, agile, pro, you know, agile prototyping program as like this from master um, for our team there. So that was really fun and I wanted to do more of that. Um, I had a daughter in 2020, uh, the day that California shut down. So after my maternity leave, I went back to work and I was, I was pretty bored. <laughs> I needed a, I needed a change. I felt stuck, you know, like Dr. Leon was mentioning before I definitely had one of those moments. Um, and so I started looking and I found a great role at the aerospace corporation. So I got mailed my laptop. And I started coming onto campus in April of this year. So it's been a really wonderful um, ride. And I've loved, you know, getting to feel immersed in the aerospace culture um, and do a lot more direct work with our government customers. Um, so that's been my career path so far. And I'll turn it over to you, Monica. Turn it over to you, Monica. One of the other things, just real quickly, that Mel didn't mention that uh, it's kind of Sonia Bajo, that in her volunteer time, she worked at a loggerhead marine center with turtles, which I think is so cool. I did. I got stationed in Florida for about nine months for a work rotation, and I wanted to meet some people, and there was a turtle rehab center right on the beach, so I'd go there every Saturday. Hi, thank you, Mary Lee and Ken, for inviting me today, and thank you for moderating today. So I am the least qualified person on this panel, <laughs> in this room, actually. Um, I am not an engineer. I am actually a teacher, and I taught in the classroom for about 13 years. Um, but all the positions that I've had, I feel like I'm early career at all of them. Um, I went into teaching not wanting to go into teaching. My background is in geology. I have a bachelor's degree in geology from Cal State Los Angeles. Uh, went straight into my master's program and got my teaching credential because I thought that would be easier. I already had children um, by the age of 25. So I thought, well, I'll just go into teaching and see what that's like, sub for a while. Um, and then I really loved it. So when I started my master's degree in geology, I actually applied for a fellowship um, where this company would place you in industry and you were supposed to you know, work in industry for the summer and then bring back to, to your school what you learned. Uh, so my project, um, that company placed me at the Aerospace Corporation. So I had to do a, an interview just like I would to get another job. And I, that was really exciting. So I put my master's on hold and don't tell my boss, but I'm still hired at the Aerospace Corporation <laughs> after that summer. Um, so my project was to do a teacher workshop. And so I suddenly became the STEM coordinator for the company, a position that doesn't exist, but that I love and I, I cherish. 
Um, and so I've been with the company now 10 years and I mostly do like summer workshops for teachers, um, you know, transition from in-person to now um, virtual and uh, starting next year hybrid. Um, I also added uh, a high school summer institute where we actually bring high school kids because how would the kids know what it's like to work in an aerospace company or in industry if they don't come and see people working. And so that's kind of been my role at the aerospace corporation. So again, not an engineer, um, but I do feel like I'm early career at everything. I've now transitioned within my school district into, uh, for the last three years, I've been, um, the teacher on special assignment for science. So I oversee all the science programs along with my administrator. Um, we run a budget and we are making sure that um, engineering and aerospace is at the forefront. And we invite aerospace engineers to come and judge our science fairs. And uh, we try to do a lot of events that have to do with science and engineering and including uh, minority students and certainly the girls, the women, um, to be more assertive and, and be part of this conversation. I've also taken a couple of roles uh, as a consultant for the UCI Science Project, uh, building uh, programs that include engineering and that involve uh, people of color and minority students, bring, uh, making science and engineering more equitable and accessible to those communities. And I've also been, uh, the last year, uh, I've been lecturing at Cal State Los Angeles uh, in the geology department, um, the entry-level course titled Natural Disasters. Oh, okay, cool, fine. Um, so first off, thank you, um, Marilyn and AIAALV for having me here. Um, it's really nice to be in a room with other people who are usually the only woman or person of color in a room. So it's nice to be in a, a room full of those kind of, of those people. So, um, I currently work at Northrop Grumman Defense Systems. Um, I'm an advanced manufacturing engineer, um, and I've been there almost a year now, um, where I actually spent half that time as a mechanical engineering intern. Um, but this uh, opportunity came up um, in manufacturing engineering that uh, with the help of, um, and I'll use the term that I learned today of a sponsor versus a mentor who um, pushed me toward to do something, uh, to, to do, pursue this position. I'm now there and I'm, I'm loving it. I'm, I'm learning a lot. Um, I support digital transformation efforts there within the manufacturing engineering uh, department. So it's, it's really humbling because I get to work with people who have 15 plus years of experience in manufacturing and at Northrop. Um, but then I'm also these, um, I, I get to learn from them and implement new systems, new softwares, new ways of doing things, digital technology. So I'm kind of the subject matter expert in things and they're all and working with other subject matter experts. So um, my job's pretty interesting. Um, definitely didn't think I would be here um, uh, maybe a year ago while still studying. My degree is in aerospace engineering. I studied at Cal State Long Beach. Um, and then I was also the co-chair for the last year 
um, for our student branch of AIAA at Cal State Long Beach. So it's really nice to be back as a youth professional and to be here. So thank you. Okay, there we go. I think there's a delay when you turn it on. Exceptional lineup of, of panelists, and thank you so much. Um, just a little bit about my background. Uh, that prior to what Mary, Mary Lee had, had mentioned, I kind of put it in context. Um, originally, my, my background is marketing and, marketing and advertising. That was my passion. That's what I thought I would spend my lifetime career doing. One, the common thread that I have heard all morning and probably leading up is that there is no common thread. There is no common thread, but anyway, so that transition to being the director of marketing for the Navy, I knew nothing about the military, absolutely zero. And somewhere into a year or two into that uh, stint, the commanding officer of the base asked me to put on an air show. Now this is in Hawaii. I'm originally from Hawaii. The only type of aviation that I had any knowledge of is those big airplanes that take you to the mainland and back again. I hated to fly, knew nothing about airplanes, nor did I want to. So I went on to um, put on the first air show. It had been the first time the Blue Angels had come to the islands in 22 years or something like that. And there were a lot of the details that they left out when they originally asked me to take on this role, like airplanes can't make it on their own from the mainland to Hawaii without refueling. I've only at that point been on a 747. They never ran out of fuel. So um, it never occurred to me that airplanes can't make it across the Pacific. So, and then of course there are other small details like the Navy, Navy Blue Angels are what? The Navy. In order to make it across the ocean, you need refueling. Who has the refueling tankers? Not the Navy. Only the Air Force does. And how do you make that work? Anyway, um, from there, uh, after the first year, the bug bit. I realized that um, aviation was kind of cool. And I learned a lot. And I was just a sponge of information. Gabrielle, you mentioned in an earlier panel something about not being afraid to ask questions. I asked a lot of questions. I felt like I was the dumb blonde in the room all the time, but I didn't care. I needed to know. Um, I asked a lot of questions and through that you acquire knowledge, right? Um, one thing I learned early on, I know I'm the one doing the talking right now, but you learn a lot more listening than you ever will talking. Um, from there, from the Navy, the base originally eventually closed. I decided that I couldn't live another moment of my life without being in aviation. So I moved here and to Southern California. And um, I created my own air show in Huntington Beach, California. You may have heard of the Pacific Air Show. It's been going on for about four years now. 25 years ago, I created that when everybody told me it was impossible um, because it's in very complicated airspace. Uh, um, you have John Wayne, Long Beach, and LAX. Um, but I did it. It wasn't without a lot of pain and a lot of sweat and a lot of tears, um, but I got the job done. So from there, I was then hired to be the a director at the Museum of Flying in Santa Monica. <clears throat> Another career transition. At that point, I knew lots about air shows. I knew lots about aerobatic airplanes and even jets. I knew nothing about World War II airplanes. And so I learned by having a child's coloring book on my desk that had the different types of airplanes. And when somebody would say something about a Corsair, I would flip to the page that had Corsair. I'm like, okay, there it is. There's the specs on it, all right. 
Um, and from that, I stayed about four and a half years, and I eventually learned a lot about World War II history, and that became my passion because I learned I actually met the real life heroes um, that made that history. From there, um, I did a stint where I had my own business for a while. I consulted for air shows, a lot of nonprofits, and then through somewhere through that transition, I was hired by the X Prize as a senior director of operations. And I think somebody else had touched touched upon imposter syndrome. Um, at that point, I knew a whole lot about airplanes, early airplanes, jets, aerobatic airplanes, you name it. I knew a whole lot about airplanes, but I knew nothing about rockets. And I was given a team of basically aerospace engineers to oversee. Not only were they aerospace engineers, they were MIT and Harvard graduates. Again, I knew nothing about rockets, but I listened to them and I learned. My, my role was to lead. Um, and I didn't think for one moment that I was the smartest person in the room. Clearly I wasn't. And so I let them teach me. So anyway, that is a little bit about my background. Um, now I'm in higher education. Um, that's a whole nother story, how that leap, but I have run through a whole litany of industries in my career, and all of them have created different professional skill sets. So with that, um, I'd like to turn this back over to the panel. And I think uh, one of the questions that I always want to know is, why did you choose aerospace? Laura, let's start with you. Why aerospace? When you could have been anything else in the whole wide world, why aerospace? Yeah. Oh, is it working? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, space inspired me from a young age. And I'd always known that I would be an engineer because I was so drawn to math and science, but what kind of engineering, right? But space is just like this endless frontier of, you know, I mean, planes are cool and everything, but... <laughs> I don't really like the atmosphere, <laughs> so, you know, um, yeah, I was just drawn to the field and I'm so glad I was because the opportunities that have been presented to me since I've been able to be a space engineer have been so cool. That's awesome. Um, so I, um, my path is a little bit different. So I've always been interested in space, like our solar system, but I didn't really know what to do with that. Um, but in high school, I had a lot of friends and um, family members, like teachers and things, tell me that I should check out engineering, but I could never really get a straight answer about what the heck engineering is or what engineers do. Um, but I took a chance um, and I went to an engineering uh, college. Um, and I was undecided my first year, and then I decided to pick mechanical as my undergrad degree to, because um, I knew it had the most opportunities, right? So I was like, well, I'll keep my options open and go mechanical. And then towards the last couple of years, then I steered more towards aerospace. I just really enjoyed the courses. Um, yeah, so it's it's been awesome. I was really into aviation. I've always been into space, but where I, you know, grew up, there just weren't a lot of space companies and opportunities. So I wasn't really sure how to get into it. Um, so I've gradually kind of migrated over to space and I'm still always learning. Um, but yeah, that's been my roundabout ever evolving career path. Celine on camera. Celine. Why, why are all space, Celine? 
Sorry, I had a hard time hearing you the first time. That's okay. My camera, uh, my mic, mic wasn't on. There's a slight delay when you turned it on and off. Um, Celine, why did you pick the aerospace industry? Why did you pick rockets? So I like to joke that aerospace engineering was just the first major on the list and I was in a rush. So I just picked it and went with it. But the real reason, I never really knew if I wanted to be an engineer, but as soon as I saw aerospace in the aerospace engineering, I thought, man, I wanna do something that pushes boundaries and space is probably, you know, it's not a boundary, it's that infinite, but you know, the best boundary that you can push. And I did not know what I was getting into when I first chose my major, but at the end, I was really glad I did. And I never wanted to change. Um, I felt like I always got to work on things that uh, I had read about and things that, you know, I couldn't believe they were letting me do. And, and now that I'll be starting full time, I feel the same way. Like, how would they let someone do this? This is so cool. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'll, I would say that I'd be interested in pursuing like a master's and just continuing to feel that same way in, in growing my knowledge base. Wonderful, thank you. And um, while we have the gals on camera, how about Eunice? Yeah. Tell us why you... Oh, um, so I actually went into college pursuing chemistry because I wanted to go into pharmacy. <laughs> and um, I met a recruiter who offered me an opportunity to intern at Aerojet Rocketdyne. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll just make some money, save some money during the summer internship and continue with this pre-pharmacy path. But my experience at Rocketdyne was truly life-changing. Like I met so many people who were who had such a large passion for space and engineering. And I mean, these are folks that in, in their prime, they're working on the space race and trying to build a rocket to take um, the first man to moon. And it was truly very inspirational. And that really fueled my passion for space and aerospace industry. And um, I never, and when I returned to school after my first internship, I actually decided to um, drop my pre-pharmacy path and just pursue my chemistry degree and eventually get my engineering degree afterwards. Um, but yeah, that's how <laughs> I uh, pursued aerospace. Fascinating. Um, yeah, usually there's not a straight line. Um, Lisa, tell us about your experience. How did you get into this field? Well, I, I hope you can hear me now um, a little bit louder. Is, is that better? I, I was informed that um, my microphone was not very uh, receptive. Is that good? Um, it's, it's soft, but that's okay. Just uh, speak loudly for us. Okay. That was your will. best voice. You, you know, I, I, um, I come from a background where I had uh, experience on a trading floor speaking to a crowd of 500 people. So... I, I'll, I'll use my, my voice there and amplify it. Um, I've always remained ahead of the curve and felt the aerospace industry evolving and shaping toward a new future. And uh, my background from capital markets and IPOs, startups, and investment banking 
shifted when I heard Jim Lovell. Um, he was our motivational speaker in the 90s. And hearing his compelling story in overcoming adversity with the Apollo 13 uh, mission was just, you could hear a pin drop on the floor um, in the ballroom. It was amazing. And that was before the movie ever came out. Now, take me back to my roots. Um, I come from a military family with the Naval Air Station. You mentioned the Blue Angels. This was the test bed of where the Blue Angels uh, train in South Texas. So I had the both of uh, the pleasure of both worlds, uh, the Navy and the Air Force. Um, I love a challenge. I felt comfortable with members from the aerospace community. Um, this is where I feel I can best serve and contribute toward the development and the innovative means in the aerospace industry with diversity and inclusion through Mission Astro Access. And we have to understand and remind ourselves the aerospace industry, when, when we share this, this industry, it is a very broad and diverse industry, ranging not only from aeronautics or you know aviation, but satellite imagery, data visualization, software engineering. It is changing very rapidly, and the future is now. And it's, it's very important for women to be involved in the aerospace industry now. So this is why I chose to shift and transition to an area where I can contribute my skill set and and move the path forward. Fantastic. Um, thank you. Diana. You are a first-time graduate in your family. So tell us, why aerospace? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a first-generation student, um, and I, I knew I was going to go to college, but I didn't always know what for. Um, it, was, it was either going to be a business, uh, law, or um, I came upon engineering. Um, my dad had always been a CNC machinist. That's what he's worked for for how so long. I don't even know how many years. But um, so I was exposed to it a little bit, but it wasn't really something I, I knew um, about. Um, I always had, a, I was fascinated by planes. The fact that we were able to get these things to fly, it always was amazing to me. Um, and, and then as I studied more um, in college, I became more interested in, um, in air astronautics too, not only aeronautics, just being exposed, having colleagues, uh, um, always um, interested in that. And then I'll never forget also uh, one of my professors made it known to us that a big part of aerospace is the defense industry that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, one of the decisions you'll have to make is um, if, if you are okay with, uh, you know, having a job in defense, because it does, it is, it is a big part of aerospace. Um, and ultimately, 
that was a decision I made. And um, I know, I think we'll talk about it later on as far as like career aspirations. I do uh, aspire to maybe go more towards um, working on planes or spacecraft, but um, that is where, yeah, that's why I've been fascinated by aerospace. Wonderful. Monica, I know you're not in the traditional sense, but you are, you are in this field. So tell us, was it a, did you have any idea that you were going to enter this world? So no, I did not. When I applied to that fellowship, I didn't understand. I didn't know which companies were out there. It turns out there were only two companies pledging fellowships. So um, this fellowship was kind of like an internship. So you come in for the summer, you do the work, and then you go back to school, um, to your school, right? And you apply what you learn there. Um, but I, like everybody here, I was just like amazed at all the cool things that people were working with. And, you know, I, I told myself, I need to figure out a way to stay here a little longer. This is like really cool. So uh, when I put together the first, the first teacher workshop, I thought, well, this is going to be the end of it. I'm just going to do my workshop and, and go on. So the volunteers, engineers, and scientists who helped me put it together, uh, we were able to bring in teachers. And they actually loved uh, helping me do, do this. So they said, well, when is the next one? And I said, well, my summer's kind of over. And um, so they ended up hiring me as an employee. So I'm a casual part-time employee. And, uh, you know, I just come back every summer and, um, and like somebody said on online, um, I can't believe they let me do what I do, you know, like they just let me play with things and, and, and I get to talk to really smart people and I, you know, I get to hear their ideas as, as you mentioned. And, you know, that's really a big part of why I think the programs that we've created have been successful is because we listen to what our engineers want to um, teach the next generation and what our scientists are doing is really important and we give them a voice and we you know we package it so that it's understandable to people outside of aerospace because I know you guys have really high language up here and I understand like maybe 40 percent of what people are saying and so I also have to ask a lot of questions but I keep coming back to aerospace because it's it's a place where I'm allowed to um to be creative, you know, and so um, every summer the programs are a little bit different. I mean, the the setup is the same. We have teachers come and they hear one of our our volunteer uh, engineers or scientists, and then we package a lesson to do with them um, or a few lessons. Uh, but really, every summer is a little bit different. We have different people coming on. We have different activities uh, when in person we give them tours of the company. And I just love going to the labs. It's amazing. As a scientist, uh, you know, when I went to college, um, I, I love being in the lab and being out in the field. So um, I just love taking people to the labs and see all the cool stuff that can be done here on Earth um, before we put stuff up into space. So all that's really interesting. Can you hear me now? There we go. Okay. Um, so we've heard the background of all of our individuals here today on this panel, and we've heard a little bit about what, why the, this aer the aerospace industry inspired them. I'd like to take it back to 
the theme of our program is making space for women. So I think the question is, you know, as we try to figure out how to make space for women and how we make this, this industry uh, more accessible, what are the things that we can contribute as a female professional? What skills do we think we can contribute? Um, and, you know, there's so many different ways that this conversation can go and so many different ways we can try and empower women to be a part of the aerospace or aviation or whatever it is community. But what skill sets do we feel personally that we bring? So let's start with Laura, you want to say? So I know today's day and age, like female and male lines are getting more blurred, you know, male skills and female skills might not be so defined. Um, but I think in general, females, we bring a lot of interpersonal skills, uh, communication, and uh, just feeling the energy of the space. Uh, like, we can tell by maybe facial expressions. Uh, what's going on, if it's being well received or not, and how we need to shift the conversation to maybe get people to understand the message we're trying to convey. Yeah. Why don't we just go down the line and then we'll take it on. We'll go down the line. Go down the line okay. and we'll take it on screen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would largely, that was loud. Um, <laughs> I would largely agree with you, Laura. Um, yeah, I don't know that. I guess I can think about what I bring and, you know, part of that is that I'm a woman, but um, yeah, I, I think I'm pretty receptive to understanding how people receive information and direction the best and I try to adapt to that style and I think I've seen that a lot pretty pervasively within my female co-working and management set as well. Um, so for me, I think, and it was mentioned in the panel uh, prior to this one, uh, you know, the, the mentorship, when you're in a role uh, like ours, uh, you know, we do have a lot of power to, uh, to empower other women, especially young women who are in high school that who come to us and you know, they may not know what aerospace engineering is. They may not know what mechanical engineering is. Uh, a lot of the people that we serve come from um, unprivileged backgrounds, Title I schools. And so for us, it's really important to, to bring engineering to them. They don't have uh, an uncle who's an engineer. Their dad isn't, you know, launch command coordinator or whatever. Um, so it's, it's bringing that to them. So I think that the mentorship part of it and uh, somebody to uh, Chris, I think, uh, said the sponsoring um, is really important. So I think that's in positions like ours, I think it's really important to bring it back uh, to the younger generations and make it more accessible. And I think the work that I'm that I'm doing, you know, that diversity and inclusivity um, that is part of that is is bringing that to um, uh, making engineering and education and science more equitable uh, to all. Um, so just to build on that, because I think that's really important um, and it's probably why uh, events like this are so great. Um, outreach and uh, STEM to just make it known, um, especially to those who don't grow up with it, 
um, that, that this is something that you can do. This is something you can study. This is something you can have a career in. You're not, we're not in the fifties anymore. And we don't just have to, you know, be a stay at home mom. There are a lot of stay at home dads now, and that's really cool too. So, um, uh, just, that was a really good point, but I also think, um, that to make space for women, um, to, uh, kind of just, uh, acknowledge, um, the value that, that women bring in, in the work atmosphere. Um, we touched a little bit on, on just the skills that we bring, I think, and, and something I find in my early career, but anytime I'm in a meeting, um, usually the women are really good listeners. Um, we're not usually the one to, yeah, first give an opinion, but rather uh, listen and then give feedback, and then and um, it makes for a more productive, if you would, uh, work uh, environment. And I think uh, we're also very organized. So <laughs> if it be for our own sake, so um, it's it's uh, we definitely need to acknowledge and encourage that um, both in the current. Um, state like right now, um, women in industry, but then also again, um, to uh, outreach to kids. Okay, how about the ladies on screen? Um, sorry, my mic is dying. Um, Hi. Lisa. Um, okay. Um, yes. Um, let's remember we had the space launch system that is at Kennedy Space Center with the name Artemis the Greek goddess, the twin of Apollo, and build on this. Um, August 26 is a monumental date in the United States for women. And to build on this, um, there, there are things to think about that women from all levels and all areas, we need everyone, whether you're a remote worker or a student studying asynchronously, um, individuals that are remote like myself, individuals from the blind, visually impaired, low vision impaired, deaf, hard of hearing, uh, hard of hearing, ADA, um, the spectrum. We want to have the diversity inclusion. Now, we have something that's called Section 508 that was implemented January 1st. 2022. And Section 508 is to make accessibility for everyone. So everyone who is a researcher or a scientist or an individual who is working remotely who has um, uh, lower limb mobility, um, adaptive 
needs can work remotely, can participate. And Section 508 means that everyone across the board, whether you're a YouTube or Adobe or any sort of content that is digitally multimedia content, will be needing to change the pivot for diversity inclusion. So there are many software engineers. We have tons of metadata that is coming from the James Webb Space Telescope that needs to be researched. We need more women expanded in this space. So, so Section 508 means that everything with closed captioning needs to be implemented in the content that's delivered for individuals to participate. It also means that there's equitable accessibility open source for individuals to participate. Many women are not aware of these initiatives. Now, we had Y2K initiatives that were implemented in January 1st, 2020. We are 12 years later behind the curve in serving and expanding diversity in the field of space to make more space for women. And I just want to bring also on this note about there's a, a recent press release that was issued on May 19th, 2022. Um, and, and I'm speaking from governmental affairs and bringing this to the table because we do need more women to the table. But it is called skill-based learning guidance. And it is stated in this press release that skilled-based learning should be implemented because NASA and all our corporations are needing individuals from all backgrounds, whether you have a degree or whether you have those accessibility needs or services or resources to offer. So that's where women, I believe, are not realizing if they're an artist or they are young and learning in academia, that they have a place in space. We have longevity. And there's a very broad, broad spectrum here um, when we speak about aerospace that we do need women from all spectrums involved. Lisa, thank you so much. Really appreciate that, your perspective. Um, Celine, we're just a few moments. I know we're running a little bit behind. Celine, can you give us your impression of what you think, what skill sets you contribute as a female? Um, I think this is a really hard question. I agree with what's been said before, but 
a lot of times I think that uh, those skills that we bring that can be a strength can also be a weakness. I mean, sometimes not being the person that speaks out uh, is, is a, can end up being a problem. But I think that as women, the biggest strength that we bring is the awareness of each other and what we can do to raise each other up. Um, encourage each other, if that's speaking out more, to speak out more, having having an awareness of our leadership styles. At the end of the day, I, I don't want to say that all women are, are better listeners or they're really bold or they're really this or really that. I think we can all bring different strengths. But yeah, I mean, just the support and the community and lifting each other up is the most important thing. Thank you. Um, and Eunice, can you please give us your perspective? Uh, I'm also on the same page as Celine. I don't have anything new to add. Um, I, ha I, I'll just say that my managers at both of my former companies have told me I have amazing interpersonal skills. So maybe it's because I'm a woman or maybe it's just a skill that I've learned to develop. Um, with my environment and my upbringing. Um, but I, I do appreciate, you know, like women, like gender diversity and different like employee resource groups um, at the workplace. I, um, because truthfully, I feel like um, I haven't had the same experiences as maybe some of my other female colleagues where they experience these um, disparities between um, being a female engineer. Um, I feel like I've been provided pretty equal opportunities, um, but maybe that is just me being a little bit naive, <laughs> um, maybe ignorant, I don't, I don't know, however you wanna put it. Um, but I, yeah, I think I've, each of the panelists, my fellow panelists have had uh, great responses. So I can't really <laughs> top off anything to, or contribute to, the, to that question. Yeah, thank you. I thought the responses from everywhere were just tremendous. Um, so many different ways that we feel that we can contribute. I know that we're probably out of time now. Um, I have about a thousand more questions that I wanted to ask you. And I was really eager to hear the answers. Um, but I know that right now we are the ones that are standing in the way between lunch. So <laughs> with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Ken, I think we need to have like a reunion of this entire morning, five years from now to see where everybody is. Um, Cause it will be so fascinating to hear the stories and the progression and, and the career moves, um, but and, and the contributions that everybody's made. Um, I do wanna end with a quote that I found earlier this week. I came across it. It's a quote by two women who created a, a business based on a more re accurate representation of women. Uh, they felt that when they were looking through magazines, they were, uh, they were airbrushed or they were fluffed and folded or whatever. But um, in, in, in even uh, in media itself, the descriptions of women. And so they really, they started their own business and it's called Darling Media. Um, but this is their quote, and it really sort of resonated with me, in particular, what we're talking about. And it begins, you are a work of art. You have the ability to fully display beauty apart from vanity, influence apart from manipulation, style apart from materialism, kindness apart from passivity, 
Competence apart from comparison and dignity without degradation. You are a catalyst to transform the world around you through your wit, your wisdom, your character, and your courage, all the while creating beauty and embodying love. You are not only interesting, but original, not only good enough, but exceptional, not just here, but here for a purpose. So with that, I want to thank everyone. Um, again, this conversation has been fabulous. And I thank the Los Angeles, Las Vegas chapter of AIAA. Ken, Mary Lou, thank you so much. Um, it's been fantastic. Good afternoon. Thank you very much, Marilyn. And thank you for Ken. Thank you for the AIAA, Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Yeah, thank you so much, everyone. We have, uh, thank you, our participants online. We have certificates for you that we're going to be mailing you. Um, again, it's been fabulous. Thank you so much and have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you to our um, to our second panel. What a great group! Uh, love hearing the career stories so far, and yeah, I agree with that. We'll see in uh, five years all the wonderful things that everyone is continuing to do. So, um, so this ends our uh, official program. Uh, for those that are here, we've folks that have ordered lunch. If you want to stay and talk to any of the folks, uh, please do. An informal time, but. Um, Again, I want to thank everyone for participating. I want to thank everyone that's online. You know, we started with about 25 additional people that were, were online as well. So I think this was definitely a, a well-attended program. And um, I do want to thank AIAA Los Angeles, Las Vegas for continuing to do this and to celebrate a very important day, as Lisa said, August 26th, Equality Day for Women in the Passage of the 19th Amendment. And I think it's just a really fitting recognition that um, AIAA does this program. So thank you all for participating. Uh, everyone, please enjoy your uh, lunch if you order it. Uh, uh, then uh, uh, if now we have snacks here and then we also have water and the juice here. So please enjoy it. Thank you, wonderful everybody.
Oh, that's Diana. Diana, I think this is yours. Yeah, BL, she just mentioned. She could tell you, right? Diana? Yeah, BL, that's her. Uh, I think there's uh, Valeria. Are you here, Valeria? Hmm. This, this should be Valeria's because that's one I. It was ordered afterwards. They are appearing. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, she's chicken curry. Uh, maybe that's the one that is not labeled. I think this is the chicken curry. Uh, so everyone ordered have the food uh, get yours okay amber did you find amber okay that's good so you get yeah monica monica has it chris laura has dr Ewo, nail gabriel diana marina mary yeah that's right i think Amber. hey dr box are you Yeah. 